tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Good morning. Welcome along to Tip Today. 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number. It won't cost you anything to make a call. Emma is looking after the programme today. Quick look at uh, what's in your headlines this morning. The Irish Independent Sub-Zero Blast brings coldest spell in years. Ireland is uh, to experience sub-zero temperatures from today as an Arctic air mass moves over the country, bringing the coldest weather since Storm Emma four years ago, we're told. The Irish Daily Mail Children's hospitals at critical capacity. Children's hospitals in Dublin have warned that they're at capacity with a sudden surge of babies born during the pandemic who haven't been exposed to much illness until now and needing treatment as well. The Irish Times and they're leading with a warning over um, electricity supply, sub-zero temperatures and low wind will combine this week to put the electricity system under pressure with air grid Uh, expecting the margin between supply and demand to be tight over the coming days. Right across the newspapers today as well, the government uh, apologising to Donald Arosta, who was uh, forced to retire from the Defence Forces more than 50 years ago, acknowledging that he was denied fair procedures and agreeing to pay him uh, compensation as well. The Irish Examiner, HSE, keep kids out of school if unwell is the message from the HSE, telling parents and principals that children with a fever, cough and sore throat should be kept out of school as the deaths of a four-year-old child from Strep A was confirmed. Also, we're reading on the examiner today, Falcher Ireland has warned that significant increases in the cost of hotel rooms are set to continue well into next year. And the warning comes as it was revealed that the head of the tourist body has written to hotels accusing them of causing reputational damage to the industry by charging sky-high prices for hotel rooms. A bit of price gouging going on there. And uh, the Irish Mirror today, Leo Varadkar, has declined to comment on a video showing him socialising in a nightclub that has gone viral on the internet. Now, the video sparked a flood of comment and debate online. However, the Tornister described it as a personal matter which related to his private life and so was separate from his professional life as a politician. If you want to comment on any of those headlines, we'd love to hear from you. 83 Coming up on this morning's show, one Tipperary lady becomes the first endometriosis sufferer to get legal cannabis. We'll speak to her in just a moment. Tipperary therapist, a bridging gap for disability services with her brand new book, How to Cope with the Grief of Losing a Pet, particularly at Christmas time. We'll be hearing from uh, Katrina Morrissey of the Farmer's Journal. Muriel Cuddy will be with us live in studio with our health slot and we have a little uh, piece of Down Your Way on the way to 1800-938-007. Now a woman living with uh, endometriosis in Tipperary is believed to be the first to receive a ministerial licence for cannabis prescription to treat pain associated with this condition. Amy Brown, who is expecting her first legal cannabis delivery tomorrow, joins me right now. Amy, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Fran. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome indeed. And I know you've had a poor night, so I won't keep you all that uh, long, Amy. But first of all, could you just tell us, because we might be too sure, what exactly is endometriosis? So it's a condition where tissue similar to the lining of the womb, but not quite the same, grows in other organs of the body. So it's been described as the most aggressive benign disease there is with no cure. Can you tell me how you've suffered with this? I mean, what have the symptoms been over the years? Is, is it pain mostly? Yeah, so pain, um, back pain, pelvic pain, joint pain, shoulder pain. Um, then I've obviously a lot of women would have really, really severe periods where they're very heavy and unmanageable. And then I suppose as well myself, I suffer quite a lot with nausea and vomiting and then like constipation or diarrhea. So it all very much depends on the day. Um, it's It can be cyclical in some of the symptoms in that every two weeks or so I'd have really bad sciatica and that's because I'd be ovulating or due or, you know, so some of it is cyclical and some of it is all month round, unfortunately. Did it take quite some time for you to get a diagnosis on this, Amy? Yeah, so I wasn't diagnosed until I was 21 and I was telling my story for a while, thinking that my symptoms began when I was 11, when I got my first period. But it was only after years of getting my notes under the Freedom of Information Act and going back and looking at my history that I discovered I was actually hospitalised three times between the age of 8 and 11 for the same symptoms and I was going to go on to ruin my teens and 20s. And, and at that stage, what were they telling you that you had? How did they describe your condition? They just kept saying that I was very unfortunate that some people just suffer this way. Some people just have heavy periods. Then they'd say that it was like maybe it was all in my head. Maybe I was just over anxious and maybe the pain wasn't really that bad. I mean, there was teachers in the school that told my mom, look, Amy has her periods the same as everyone else. She's just going to have to get on with it. And like I was fainting. <laughs> I was passing out with the pain and, you know, they were having to send me home all the time. And that my mom even got berated for believing me, you know. My God, and this must have affected your mental health, Amy, did it? Oh, significantly. Yeah, significantly, especially as a young teenager. Like, I, I was put on the contraceptive pill at 11. And for 10 years then, I was given every hormonal treatment on the market. So, like I've said before, I deal with women now on a one-to-one basis in their 30s and 40s experiencing all these trial and error medications. And their mental health has fallen apart. So, it, it really kind of signifies for me how much I was put through as a teenager and like how little support I had, you know. Um, in terms of, I mean, you say every medication um, out there you've tried at some point or other, but the side effects of some of that must have been uh, considerable, was it? Yeah, so the side, that's the hardest part really of trying the various medications is you're so desperate to find something that's going to help you only to end up taking something that actually causes symptoms that are worse than the ones that you're trying to get rid of in the first place. You know, so it's it's really, really difficult to, like when you're, you're trial and error and all these medications. And like a lot of them had me feeling like a zombie. I Like I wasn't present. The antidepressants made me feel very numb. You know, I'm not knocking them for, for people know, yeah. that they work for, don't get me wrong. But for me personally, it, it just, it wasn't right for me. And 
I was constantly asking and constantly bringing up the conversation about cannabis, but unfortunately I was met with a lot of rejection and a lot of stigma. How did it come about then that you will be able to access medicinal cannabis? How, How did that come about? So I suppose when the Medicinal Cannabis Access Programme was introduced, I was very interested in how it was going to play out. And so i done a hell of a lot of research and made sure that I was well-versed in, in what was happening. So I understood that I don't qualify for the Medical Cannabis Access Programme, but discovered that I could go the ministerial licence route if I could access the pain consultant to agree to prescribe it and to oversee the treatment. So that was the hardest hurdle, to be honest, because I'm sure you know yourself the waiting list sure. for consultants yeah. are extremely long. Uh, the first one I waited for for five years told me to emigrate if I wanted to use cannabis. My so God. I said, well, that's fine for me. But what about the other 10 women who could benefit significantly from this option? You know, I can't just abandon them. Like So anyways, I carried on and I waited and waited and got another appointment with a different clinic. And... This guy agreed to hear me out and he said, look, we'll go your route if you choose to go mine first and we'll see if the procedures that I can do might help. So I agreed to that. That was fine. And unfortunately, this, I think it was three procedures I had with him didn't help. And so he stuck to his word then and decided that he would apply for the ministerial license on my behalf. And we got it. So it's amazing. It's fantastic. Now, I know that it's very costly. So how will you get around that, Amy? Well, it's €216 uh, for the prescription that I'm on at the moment for a month. If my dosage increases by a gram a day, that will go €216 over the month. Do you know, that's for 30 grams. So if I go from one gram a day to two grams, it's going to double. If I go from one to three, it's going to triple. So that is going to be quite problematic moving forward. But I'm keen that we're going to be successful with getting the government to listen and include it on the drugs payment scheme because I'm going to save them a fortune on all the opioids that I won't be prescribed anymore and also I have a medical card that I didn't pay for those opioids in the first place so I don't know why they expect me now all of a sudden to have money for this cannabis medication on a means-tested disability payment, do you know? And would, it, would it not come in under that chronic illness um, uh, payment that's out there? I wasn't aware of a chronic illness payment. I'm aware of an additional need payment and I'm going to go that avenue and try and get some help. But no, I wasn't aware of the right. Well, I know that if you have diabetes, for example, it's seen as being a chronic illness and a long-term illness and you get your meds uh, for free in that case. So does it come in under that, I wonder, in some in some fashion? I'll certainly look into it, Fran. That's another avenue now for me to research. Yeah, it might be well worth having a look at. Are you pretty sure that this will help you? I mean, are there uh, is there much research out there, Amy, around this, for example? Yeah, so there's lots and lots of research. In Canada, they actually run workshops for patients to explain to them which strain of cannabis is most effective for which symptoms and which way to consume it. Because there's many ways to consume cannabis and it comes in many forms. Mm. So the answer to your question is yes, it will help 100%. I know it will because of my own anecdotal evidence over the past 15 years. Cannabis has been my only consistency. But sadly, I was was sourcing it on an unregulated market and I ran the risk of 
running into the Gardaí or, mm. you know, yes, jail sentence. So, but, but it did help you, Amy. It did help straight away, did it? It helped immensely with physical pain, with emotional anguish, with PTSD, with anxiety, with social stuff. Wow. It, it's helped me in, in more ways than I can even express. But, you know, I suppose the, the thing is, I'm finally being recognised in the eyes of the law as a leading patient. Yes. I have my diagnosis for endometriosis for nine years now, and it's only now that I'm actually recognised as a legal patient. I was still breaking the law as a patient for all those years. So my goal is to, to empower other women to come forward and to speak out about their cannabis consumption because there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be stigmatised for, and no one else has to live and walk in our shoes in that much pain every day. So nobody else should have a say on our bodily economy and what we choose to consume to feel better. Absolutely. Um, can I finally ask, Amy, the toll on your life? Would would I be speaking to a very, very different Amy Brown if you didn't suffer with endometriosis? Oh, absolutely. Like, the, the trajectory of my life has completely changed because of my condition. And look, I, am not, I don't regret it. Like, it's, I suppose I like to think that I'm turning my pain into power. I'm helping so many women out there, like what I'm doing with advocacy and stuff. And, you know, I'm doing social care work. I'm in, in the middle of a degree, a, a bachelor's degree. Right. And I don't think that that education or my passion would be fueled as much if I hadn't gone through so much, you know. And then the team in Romania, I went there three years ago for surgery, for multidisciplinary um, excision surgery. And it really gave me a chance at life again. So I'm going back again now in two weeks. Unfortunately, the, the chronic pain and the symptoms have resurfaced quite significantly this year. And I'm worried about the disease having regrown on my diaphragm. So the surgery is booked. I head over to Romania Sunday week. I'll be there for Christmas by myself. But I've been saying it's worth sacrificing this Christmas to hopefully have a future of, of more manageable pain. And I have a GoFundMe at the moment running to get the folds up for that. So hopefully all going well. And tell me about that GoFundMe. Fund me. How can people help you out there, Amy? So on all my social media, I have a link tree link that brings you to all the advocacy work I've done, and the GoFundMe is in here. Or they can simply Google GoFundMe and the name Amy Brown, or even endometriosis, and I'm sure it will come up. All right. Well, we wish you the very, very best. And I know that it was a struggle for you to talk to me today because you're feeling a little unwell, Amy. But thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And the very best of luck to you, Amy. Thank you, Fran. And we appreciate you covering the topic as well. It it means the world. Have a great day. You you you. too, Amy. Thank you and a happy Christmas to you. That's Amy Brown speaking to us there. The first endometriosis sufferer to get legal cannabis. 1800-938-007. Back in a moment. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Yeah, um, uh, Pat Lynch was on to us and he says a uh, politician's uh, private life should be kept uh, private and that's making reference to that story in The Mirror today that Leo Bradcar has declined to comment on that video showing him socialising in a nightclub, and it's uh, the one that's gone viral 
on the internet. Uh, that's Pat's opinion on that. Let me just go back to text. Uh, when Leo behaves like that in public, uh, it's no longer private. More waffle, says somebody else. Uh, another listener saying, Fran, uh, Radker's private life is his business once it's private. This was in public. Pierce Doherty did similar in snogging a young woman in a club. Uh, it would be all over the media. Uh, Radcar gets a free run all of the time and it goes on to make some other allegations as well. 83 Now, listeners have spoken to us about calls for a vote on a united Ireland. One of those listeners, Pat, said earlier on um, that he feels it's time but uh, being delayed by the government while Mary uh, thought that uh, if we voted on it tomorrow the answer would be no because of the economic impact And she also felt that we gave up enough to Britain without now having to potentially give up the flag and indeed the anthem too. Now, we shared it on uh, Facebook and on other social media platforms. And Michael joins me now. Good morning to you, Michael. Morning, friend. Good to talk to you today, Michael. What about your opinion on uh, this? Well, in relation to the the flag and the anthem, um, I don't see why we should have to give that up in, in a United Ireland scenario. Uh, the flag, the, the flag itself, is a symbol of unity. Mm. The harp is our own; it's because they were our own tradition and our own culture. Mm-hmm. The anthem itself. Now, some people will say it's sectarian because it's about soldiers and 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 things, but I don't think it's sectarian myself. It's more to do with the the struggle that this country had to gain its own independence from from England. So I don't see why we should have to give those things up in um, a United Ireland scenario. Um, at the end of the day, though, I don't think we need to worry about a United uh, Ireland scenario for a while because especially the economic uh, consequences of it, both for South and the North. Mm. I mean, people people forget to think that in a United Ireland situation, the cost of living here in the South, all our own standards of living here would take a dramatic fall. Do you think so? Uh, I think so, because mm. if you take Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland at the minute, if you take the, the jobs issue on it, mm-hmm. there's, there's an awful lot of Northern Ireland unemployment, and especially in the, in the younger age groups, 16 maybe to 24, and they did drop out of secondary schools, especially in the disadvantaged areas. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about the, the very high uh, high unemployment rate in compared to the United Kingdom itself, to England, to the mainland England. And you mean so, we'd be taking the responsibility of that uh, upon ourselves here from an economic point of view? Is that, is that course, what you mean? Of course yeah. we will, because England are getting a £10 billion uh, pound Sub- subvention, subsidy, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, subvention from the English government. Mm. And in the United Ireland situation, that subvention is gone. Mm. Now... Where did that money come from? That is now that would result in a five to ten percent. Well, the the talk out there, Michael. I'm not sure how it would work out, but it would be some sort of a phased um, uh, exit from Northern Ireland in terms that monies might still come from from London over a period of time until you know it finally um, rests with the responsibility of the Irish government. It is, but but I. But still, the money at the end of the day, the money is going to have to come from somewhere. Mm. And where is, where are we going to generate that money? Within, our, say, in relation to Northern Ireland, mm. I mean, the unemployment rate. There, people there's a there's a very high percentage of people around twenty eight percent in that age group I mentioned earlier. Mm. And 
they're not even making themselves available from work according to the, the Northern Ireland. There, there are positives. It, 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 there, there are positives about what's happening in the six counties as well. You know, some very successful uh, businesses there, established businesses for many, many years that might play into our economy as well. They will, but if you take the English, if you take UK-based businesses mm-hmm. in, in Northern Ireland, in a, in, a, in, a, in a United Ireland scenario, you're going to have wage increases there. Mm. I mean, the national average wage in, the, in, in, in Northern Ireland and UK is around 32,000. Mm. In, in a United Ireland scenario, that goes up to around 44,000 44, per annum. Now, those companies, who's to say that they're all going to stay in Northern Ireland? They'll probably uh, relocate back to mainland Britain, into, especially to northern parts of mainland Britain, where they can operate at a cheaper cost. Mm. And so that's going to impact unemployment, uh, we'll say, drastically in Northern Ireland again. So those jobs are going to have to be provided. So And, and that's going to have to be through maybe other foreign direct investment. But then what, what is the, the, the quality of, of worker you've got up there? Because there's a lot of people in Northern Ireland and they're, they're not really... They're not really Irish or anything like that. You know, there's a lot of foreign nationals in Northern Ireland. But that people but forget there's about. foreign nationals everywhere now, sure, but Michael. There is, but not at, the same, not at the same percentage rate as there is. I mean, you're talking about a population of 1.9 million roughly in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you call it? Does that, compared to here, I mean, we, of course, there's nothing wrong with having foreigners and in the, in the foreign uh, uh, workers and that. But mm. the, the education, their, their, their education and, and their the, their, um, the qualities that a lot of the employers would be looking for just don't exist in Northern Ireland because anyone in Northern Ireland with those with those type of qualifications, so with degrees and that, they're gone working elsewhere. Mm. Well, they're, they're, not necessarily yeah. true. Not necessarily well, true. Well, according to the according to the Northern Ireland Institute and Research Agency, they are. So, what do you call it? Um, well, it's as, a very as, big as, statement yeah. to say that all of the educated no, workforce are no longer working. No, not all of them. Not, right. not, not, but not, not are you saying a substantial number of them? Is that, is that a what substantial you're number of them, of course, and a substantial number. Yeah, but it and, might and, be it might be more attractive for, for that aspect of the workforce to be part of something bigger than which is a thirty-two county Ireland that could, you know. It is, but but even if you t- yeah, but you take you take employment, that's one one thing. I mean, there's a, there's a very high possibility that English-based businesses are going to move out in Northern Ireland uh, as soon as, if, if there was a United Ireland. But then you take the HSE itself. Mm. I mean, what happens with the HSE, with the health service? Well, that's I the mean, big stumbling block for, for people in Northern Ireland who seem to have a better service with the NHS. Well, it's got to be a better service. If you think of it, there's 73,000 staff employees in the, HS, in the NHS. Mm. That, that was of June 2022. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the NHS was already in crisis pre-COVID. Mm. It had the longest waiting times in the UK. Mm. Now, this has been exacerbated, we'll say, heavily since the pandemic, and in severe staff shortages right. as well. But by comparison so, to the issues that we have here with the HSE, it doesn't compare, you know? It is, but you see, the HSE, for its, for its, for its failings and everything else, I mean, it's a public, publicly funded hospital. I mean, the, in the, the NHS itself, there's a lot of services that the people people have to pay for. Hmm. 
say, like dental, you pay for dental, op, uh, optics and uh, uh, opticians and all that. Yeah, but you, you look, look at what's happening that. here with dental, with so many dentists just opting out of the public service because it's just not worth it to them, you know? They are, but you, but you GPs in, in, right. in, in, under the NHS Well, basically, system. you're saying to me, this will, all come to, this will all come down to economics, Michael, is that it? Uh, Come down to economics, but but not everyone in Northern Ireland um, cast themselves as uh, cast themselves as Irish. Of course, we'll say, of course. No, what we see a lot of the the the, the people now uh, Catholics have outnumbered Protestants in the twenty twenty one uh, census mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland yeah. for the fourth time in the hundred one year history. There, yes, but people in Northern Ireland can identify as Irish, British, or both. Yeah, I mean, if you if you go with the the, the Northern Ireland Institute and research. They say 31.9% had a British-only identity mm. in 2021. And that was down from 38% in 2011. Right. But, then, but to get back to your very first point, uh, all the more reason that if it would make it more comfortable for them to be part of a 32-county Ireland, should we not look at the notion of changing a flag or, or an anthem or something that some people might see as being trivial? No, because I don't think so. Because if you if, if people in if people in Northern Ireland mm. vote to to be part for United Ireland, mm. and they're doing it from a nationalist point of view, mm. that they they want to be Irish, then they're not going to have a problem with the, the anthem or the or the flag. Right, but it's people, the other people, people to embrace the others, is it not? No, I should have been embracing others, to be honest about right, it. But well, you, how, much, how much do we give away? But how much un, do we continue un, to give away? But unless you're diplomatic... I mean, the most diplomatic document of all has to have been the, the, the Good Friday Agreement. That had to encompass everybody in, in there and give a little to everybody. Yeah, but, even, but even the Good Friday Agreement never foresaw uh, uh, a call for border poll this early. Mm. They, they, would, they, they was looking at it as a, a United Ireland, maybe in a couple of generations' right. time. But it may it well be a couple... Not, I mean, we not, don't know. It could be 10 years. It could be another generation. We don't know. Could, I think you're a long way away from us, oh. quite frankly. Because, I mean, if people in Northern Ireland... I mean, you will me so a lot of people in Northern Ireland identify just as Northern Irish only. Of course. They don't... Of they course. call themselves Irish or English. Then you have that large section. No one really has a majority of whether they, uh, how they right. identify. All right, so, Michael. I, mean, I must. I must. I must leave it yeah. there, Michael. But we enjoyed your contribution. A happy Christmas to you, and thanks very and much. Indeed. Thank you. Thank uh, you for coming on with us today. Bye-bye. That's uh, Michael. How do you feel about that? Eighteen hundred nine three eight double zero seven. Now, Emma Ryan is a twenty-three-year-old speech and language therapist from Tipperary who is openly uh, joining parents in the fight for access to services. Emma works for Down Syndrome uh, Tipperary and has released a book that is bridging the gap for SLT access as she joins me now. Emer, good morning to you. Hi, Fran. How are things? I, uh, things are very well indeed, Emer. And I really enjoyed your book and I'd love you to, to share some of your, your thoughts with us. Um, you were speaking about, you know, from an autistic um, perspective, you're, you're saying services, it's just not good enough. Yeah, so really, it isn't even just specifically for for people who are autistic, but for all people who have disabilities, and even people who mightn't have a diagnosis. The access for services at the moment basically means that you're on a waiting list for about two to three years before you're seen by a speech and language therapist. And really, a lot of families are in limbo. They have no idea what to be doing in that time. 
stress is really high, as you can imagine, when they don't know what to be doing in the meantime, when they're not sure when their child will be seen. Um, so really, I wrote the book in an effort to reduce that frustration and try give parents some practical tips and guidance on what to do in the meantime while they're waiting to access services. And of course, parents can play a huge part. And I was very interested to see how you approached this, uh, the book, Anna's Big Shopping Adventure. But it's more of a tool for parents than it is even a, a book for the kids, is it not? Yes. So I suppose I aimed to do both. Yes. So really, when a child is reading the book with the parent, the child thinks that they're just reading their usual bedtime story. Um, but at the start of the book, as you mentioned there, there is a section for parents that kind of describes three key strategies on how to support language development and bring out more language and participation in your child during reading. So, for example, one of those, um, I know a lot of people with disabilities use love signs. So one of those strategies in the book is that all of the key words so the words that are highly repeated, the words that are most important for understanding the story are highlighted in the book. And as a parent, then, you know when you're going through the book to repeat those words as much as possible. And also, if you sign with your child, to sign those words to help them understand the story. Yes, and to then put emphasis on those words, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because, say, for people with Down syndrome, for any other child, it takes 12 times hearing a word to learn it, to learn how to understand it. Mm. Before someone with Down syndrome, it actually takes 36 times hearing that word. So even in that statistic, you can see that there's a huge, huge difference in the rate of learning. And that's really what all the repetition that parents and um, therapists recommend aims to kind of target. The more things are repeated, the faster the, the kids will learn those skills or those words. I love the notion as well, Emer, of how you comment then on what it is that you're reading, just to, I suppose, expand the notion. Is that fair to say? Yes, absolutely. And again, the repetition actually comes into that too. You know, years ago, I remember when I was small, you know, my dad and my mom read a bedtime story with me every single night of the week. And we loved it. Um, but sometimes I find these days that, you know, parents are so busy and technology has come into the fold an awful lot that actually reading isn't something that's done a lot in family mm. homes as much. Mm. Um, so children are actually missing out on that chatting about the book or chatting about things. Because when a child is in front of a screen, there's nobody actually interacting with them because they're so focused on that screen. Whereas when you're reading a book and you comment on things in the book, so not just reading the, the words in the pages, but also chatting to your child and commenting about the book gives them more of an opportunity to respond to you and to participate in the book actively rather than just sitting there listening. Um, yeah. And that in itself is a huge thing to bring on language. You explain as well how parents can expand a word. I mean, if your child, your child points to an apple, for example, mm -hmm. uh, you could say red apple. So you're you're adding to, I suppose, the word. Yeah. And, and, that, and that has great consequence as well. Yes. So when a child is first learning language, you'll often see that they're only using one word at a time. So they'll label things. Yes. And that kind of means that really that's all they can understand as well as you. So they understand when you speak to them in one word sentences. 
So what I always recommend parents to do is to add on one word to what they've said to teach them how to make their sentences bigger. Um, so say for another example, if a child says, mommy eat apple, then the mom could say, yes, mommy is eating the red apple. So just the child then will understand the words that they've used and their attention then is drawn to the one word that's different. So they learn then how to add that word in and how to make their sentences bigger. And that grows and grows then as the child themselves grow until they're speaking in fluent sentences. I think it's fantastic. I mean, it sounds incredibly simple and maybe we should all picked up on this ourselves years ago, Emer. You know what? People often say that. Um, and I think, again, really, in the past, parents were actually doing a lot of this unknown to themselves. Um, but today's world, especially since COVID, you know, children weren't out and about as much, they weren't meeting people as much, and they weren't exposed to as many opportunities for communication with new people. So because of that, a lot of children since COVID are actually experiencing language delays. So they would have been that little bit slower to start talking. Um, and that's when all of these strategies really come into the fold. Because again, you mightn't be very conscious that you're doing them, but this is the kind of stuff that children actually missed out on during COVID. And it's another thing that they miss out on when they're constantly in front of a screen on the iPad or the telly. They're really missing out on how meaningful communication is. And I mean, especially with play, I mean, children play all day, mm. but what parents don't realise is that actually a child's frontal lobe in their brain is activated during play. And that's also the area of the brain where their memory centres are. So it means that when a child is playing, they're far more likely to remember what they're learning than if they were sat at a table doing it on paper. Um, so again, that's why reading comes into it, because they actually think they're having fun. So they remember what they're learning a lot faster. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, I love the illustration as well. You you did that yourself as well as writing the book. Yeah. No, I'm not an artist, but it, it, I carried it off anyway. It looks wonderful, I think. I, and and I could you. see how a kid would be absorbed in it. I, I think it looks fantastic. How can people pick up this uh, book if they want to do so, Emer? Um, so first of all, I have an account on Instagram called The Speechy Spiel. So I operate under that. And if if, um, parents or grandparents, aunts, uncles, even SNAs and teachers have been a huge um, cohort who have been buying the book, if any of them want to access um, more specific tips on speech and language, they can follow the speechy spiel on Instagram, or you can purchase the book through Down Syndrome Tipperary, who are getting one euro from every book sale, um, or on buythebook.ie online. Now, it's also available on Amazon and Book Depository, but in the spirit of supporting Irish this Christmas, Buy the Book is an Irish-owned company. All right. Well, congratulations. It's a fantastic piece. Just before I let you go, Emer, can I ask yeah. you, you're 23 years old yourself. Why Why have you taken this up as a kind of a, almost a life's work, I suppose, in some way? Because you, see, you say yeah. to us that you're devoting your life to fighting for equality and services for people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think anyone who knows me will really agree with that. Um, I have four first cousins who have a disability, mostly autism. Um, So I have grown up seeing what they could access and could not access. And I've seen the direct impact of not being able to access things like speech and language therapy, occupational therapy, therapies that really help them to engage in daily life better. And then I started working in Down Syndrome Tipperary a year and a half ago and the kids here just bring me so much joy and I just wish that I could do 
anything possible to make their, their lives better. And another thing is for the parents, I mean, you can never underestimate how stressful it can be for a parent to constantly have to fight for your child's rights, your child's needs. Um, so hopefully my book will be the first step in making things easier for the children and making things easier for parents and that children will be able to access what they rightfully deserve. All right. Well, well done to you and many congratulations. The book is called Anna's Big Shopping Adventure and written and illustrated as well, by the way, by Ema Ryan. Uh, happy Christmas to you, Ema, and thank you for coming on with me. And you, Fran. Thank, thank you, you so much. Bye-bye to you now. Bye-bye. We'll take a break. Back with more. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. Welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Now, lots coming into us on uh, various different... Uh, uh, issues that we've been chatting about this morning. I'll put that together and I'll bring it to you in just a little while. County Tipperary Chamber of Commerce has appointed Paul Berrigan as its new president, Clanmill native Paul, a qualified engineer and senior manager of maintenance at Boston Scientific in Clanmill. He's worked on site there for uh, about 22 years. Indeed, he's been an active member on the board of the County Tipperary Chamber of Commerce for over three years. And I'm delighted to say that he joins me in studio. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning, Fran. And many congratulations uh, to you, but it's a big undertaking, Paul. It's a big undertaking. Um, it's an enjoyable undertaking. I suppose I've been born and bred Clonmel man, Tipperary man. Um, I've been involved in the county, I suppose, from various sporting aspects, various business aspects, obviously working in Boston Scientific there, as you called out, in Clonmel. And I... It's to give back to the county, I suppose. When you look at Clamel, you look at Tipperary, you look at Nina, you look at each quarter of the county and, I suppose, involved in those through the sporting activities, it's the what you can give back to your county. So it's just to be really involved in that and like we have a, a really good board that are working on the chamber as well. We have Paula Kearney, who we know rotated off the board this year. She was our president for the last four years. She's done phenomenal work mm. within the chamber and I suppose she was a real she was real encouraging or a real influence to me in terms of where we're going with the chamber and how we can represent the businesses within the county um, and I suppose to take up that role from Paula I suppose it's an honour to mm. do that and I suppose continue on with the great work that Paula has done. And taking over, Paul, at a time when, you know, I mean, businesses are in, in a lot of trouble out there. I mean, energy costs, for example, we're hearing about rate costs in the local area here going up by, by 5%. All of these things piling on all of them, war in Ukraine, just coming out of COVID, all of these things. It's, it's a hell of a time to be taking over at the helm, isn't it? It's a real challenge. Yeah. It's a real challenge for the businesses, in, particularly within Tipperary, for the country, uh, there's a lot going on, as you call out, the energy, energy increases, mm. inflation, property tax, the, the rates increase. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot there, I suppose. It's how we can take that and how we can rejuvenate the, the county, how we can bring more uh, business into the county, have more access to the county. So mm. in terms of infrastructure, roads, in terms of housing, housing is a real call out, I suppose, within the county for 
businesses to expand, for businesses to develop. It's um, supplying the housing, supplying the, mm. the amenities within the town, marketing the town, um, supplying the infrastructure into the town and lobbying for that and supporting that. And that lobbying is a very important part of it. I mean, you'd be working, I presume, closely with the local authority, for example. And uh, that in itself is a, a huge job, isn't it? It it is. We have a, we have a good board. We have good connections. Michelle Aylward, our CEO, she she has done phenomenal work there over the last two years in terms of uh, building that relationship with the Tipperary County Council. I think they are very engaged in working with with us. We do have regular meetings with them. We, uh, I suppose, the issues and concerns that we have within the county, we bring them to the county council. And I think that relationship has. Over the last four years under Paula's reign has really, I suppose, built mm. in terms of um, that relationship. And I think we just need to continue that. And Have you got your head around your first 30 days and have you got your, your, your plan in place? And what, what would you like to achieve in, in that time? We have we we've had five board members rotate off this year. Very strong, influential board members rotated off this year. The the first call of business was to replace the five um, board members that rotated off. Myself and Michelle have gone out. We've had a lot of interest in the roles. Myself and Michelle have gone out, and we have sat down and interviewed a lot of the um, potential board members from each quarter of the county. We have filled probably four of the five, six slots that were available, so a little bit more to do on that. From there then, um, is to sit down and build in that five-year plan, uh, work back then and build your zero to three-year plan or your zero mm. to 12 one plan mm. and really focus on the, the items that we need to achieve within the next 12 months and how they'll lead on to the three-year plan and the five-year plan. So that's the next I suppose call or support business is building that plan so we hope to have that in place before Christmas uh, bring the full board with us and particularly all the new members and new board members and I suppose what we expected always developing that strategy and mm. how, how how each of us can be equally involved in that. And, and Paul what is morale like out there uh, among business owners and, and businesses? What What is it like? I mean what when they look to the future, are they are they positive? How how are they feeling? I'd say there's there's a mix there's a mixed feeling out there for um, certainly. I think housing is a concern. I think the amenities within the towns is a concern. It's how do you bring that life back into the town? How do you bring the buzz back in there? How do we attract young people into the town? Um, how do we keep the? I suppose the people, the businesses that we have in the town, how do we keep them in the town? Uh, when you look at the likes of the energy increases, when you look at the likes of the the rates increases, it doesn't bode well in terms of where we're going, but I think the likes of the Civic Plaza in Clamel, the Town Market in Tipperary, the Sustainable Energy Centre in Nina, mm. I think the likes of those, we need to focus on those, bring those heartbeats back into the towns, uh, mm for the people to be interested in staying within the towns and boost that morale, but yeah. more people in the town, more access to the county. Uh, one one of the things business. that concerns me greatly, and I've seen it over the last couple of months, is people with great enthusiasm and drive and passion and all of that, starting up a business, 
within a few weeks, and I'm thinking of a cafe that I know about and a restaurant, that having to close down because they just can't. So all of that passion, all of that drive is wasted in some way. Isn't it? Wouldn't it be very interesting to find out the detail behind that? I mean, what killed that passion? What killed that dream and vision? Yeah, and as a chamber, that's what we need to get, get into the... I suppose get into the pulse of it's to find out really like be really connected with those businesses and like a lot of businesses are they're going after they want to start up mm. but then find it really hard so it's to get into get into that and just find what are the factors that actually are impacting those businesses mm. why can't they keep going is there other ways of doing businesses? We do a lot, like we obviously have the Tipperary Skill Net as well. We run a lot mm. of courses above there in terms of personal development and that. It's to get, I suppose, those courses out there, but it's for the businesses to know as well that the Chamber is there. Uh, reach out reach out to the Chamber. Uh, we have a, a website there. Do contact us. Anything that we can do as a Chamber, we'd be absolutely delighted to get in there hear the stories, hear what's impacting them and mm. how we can really help support the business. You would urge people listening to us who have businesses but mightn't be part of the Chamber, you would urge them to get involved with you, Paul? I think so, because if we're, we're all connected, like we're all local people, we're all connected with the, with the county mm. from all aspects of the county. We all try and support our own in whatever way we can. Uh, the more people that are involved... Um, within the county, I suppose, the more business we can bring mm. to the county. Shop local, uh, dine local. Mm. There is a lot within our county. There is a lot of amenities within our county. It's utilising those. It's can we try and bring more activities within the county? I know we talked about a Tipton back in Paula's days. Yeah. We talked about a Winterville. There's a lot of various things that we can do as a county to help support local help support the county. Uh, just finally, I mean, you have a very responsible position at, uh, at Boston. How how will you marry the, the two things together? Yeah, I suppose Boston has been a, um, an integral part of the, well, the Clamel surrounds for yeah. the last 25 years, um, really engaged in CS, CSR activities around around the county. We do local charity, a local charity where we raise 50,000 every year for for charity. Mm. So it's really supporting the county. So Boston Scientific have always had members um, on the board on the boards, yeah. since they've been there, really support the work of the chamber. So, and so they see it as being very important. It's obviously. very important, a very important so, aspect yeah. of it. So. I, I guess accommodation is an issue for Boston because a lot of your workers, I presume, would be looking for accommodation locally and the like. Is it? Yeah, is that something you you hear about constantly and? Uh, Always. Always. I'd, I'd have, a, I'd have a, a strong team of engineers and maintenance technicians above in Boston Scientific and trying to bring in new graduates and new young engineers coming out of college that may not necessarily be from Clonmel. Um, we're finding it really hard to get housing within Clonmel, within the surroundings, right. um, to be able to house those. It does impact business in terms of expansion. It it. We do need more housing. We need to make whatever accommodation is there available. Um, we, we need it quickly. We need it quickly. Paul, we wish you well in your term as president, and thanks very much for coming into us today. Thanks Thank a million. You. Happy Christmas to you and your family Happy as Christmas. well. Thank you, Paul Berrigan there, the new um, president of Tipperary Chamber. Ton August and Lowen's like 
Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on. On 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Sheila. Welcome back to uh, Tip Today. 1800-938-007. The text and WhatsApp 083-311-3311. We'd always be delighted to hear from you. You can uh, email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, it can be easy to minimise the death of an animal, but if you've ever had a pet in your life, as I know very well, you will know that losing them can be utterly devastating. Now, with Christmas just around the corner, our thoughts turn towards those who are looking at spending a festive season without their beloved pets for the very first time. Well, Anne-Marie Troy is a qualified pet bereavement and support counsellor and holds qualifications in human-animal bond psychology, and she joins me now. Anne-Marie, good morning to you. Hello. And good How are you? To, I'm very well indeed, Anne-Marie. Good to talk to you today. Um. I think there's a lot of people that don't realise the heartbreak of, of losing a pet and how profound it can be. Absolutely, they don't. It is very misunderstood and it is very unsupported. And in this day and age, it is absolutely horrendous and harrowing for people when they lose their companion animals, that they are so unsupported and they are expected to get over it the next day, literally the next day. Yeah, and, uh, you know, some of the most distressing things you can say, well, one of the most distressing things you can say to somebody who lost a pet is, I should get another one, as, as if it were a toy or something, you know? Yeah, it is, it's horrendous. Society completely diminishes our loss. We have just lost a family member, a companion, and we are treated like the freezer has literally broken down. Mm. Get rid of it, replace it. And that's not reality. That's not reality. And from a psychology point of view, Anne-Marie, how does it compare with losing a human loved one? It can be equally as destroying, equally as damaging. There are three terms we use. Everybody knows these terms in reference to the loss. Hmm. Uh, Bereavement, grief and mourning. Bereavement refers to the loss of someone or something we love. Grief refers to our internal process of that loss. And mourning refers to the outward expression of that loss, the rituals, the ceremonies. Now, in order to heal well from loss, we need to grieve well and we need to mourn well. And with the loss of the companion animal, what's missing is the mourning part. We don't have the traditional rituals, ceremonies, they are not there for us like they are for human loss. Yeah. And that's why it can be so prolonged and so much harder for us who have lost a companion animal. I think part of it might be, and this was certainly my case when we lost our, our, our dog some years ago, but you feel a bit foolish about saying to somebody, look, I'm, I'm grieving over this creature. You know, you almost keep it to yourself because you feel that you shouldn't be so down about this. Society 
Tracy has done that to us and it's such shame. I mean, people don't realise our relationship with, we'll say dogs in particular, mm. goes back so far. So far that they are saying now that the difference between Neanderthals, they became extinct, man carried on and existed thanks to his cooperative relationship with dogs. So dogs are responsible for our survival. And if you were to give advice to people out there, I mean, you know, how how should you go about your grieving process if you've lost a, a much-loved pet? The important thing is to be kind to yourself, to understand that what you are feeling is perfectly normal. Actually, Dogs Trust ran a fantastic campaign there during the summer where they tried to bring awareness to employers the importance of some time off after the loss of an animal, mm. which is absolutely amazing. It certainly needs to be highlighted. So know that what you are feeling is perfectly normal. Find yourself support. Surround yourself by people who care. We don't need platitudes. We don't need advice. We don't need your even your own experiences of loss. What we need is just someone to be there for us, just to understand Ask someone, what can I do for you? Ask someone about their dog mm. I mean, we, mm. or their rabbit, bird, cat. And that's the sad thing about this. It is so accepted that we have companion dogs, but yet it's so hard for, for the dog lovers to reach out for support when they lose their dog. Can you imagine how hard it is for people who are cats lovers mm. who've lost their cats, lost their bird, their bunnies, their horses. It's just impossible for those people to seek support. And in the same way as if you lose a, a family member, I mean, the milestones are very important. I mean, Christmas time coming up, for example. Milestones um, are yeah. the hardest. They are just the hardest because you've so many amazing memories all through the years yes. with that family member. So Christmas is definitely a tough one. What I would say is to focus on the rituals, the mourning part, which is the ceremonies. It is lighting a candle. Do little rituals that that make you feel better. Light a candle. Put a present under the tree. Um, you know, there's so many little things. But yeah, I just said buy buy that gift. Yes. yes. Share your stories around the Christmas table. You know, happy stories. Find out um, other family members' memories of that animal. What do you... Exactly, exactly what you would do for a human. Right. Do what... those things for yourself. In your role as a pet bereavement and support counsellor, I mean, do, do you deal uh, with people all over the country who are going through this? I do. Yeah. yeah. I do. I do. People from all over the country contact me. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and often it is just a call in that that initial shock, you know, just that in the early, early stages of the loss, people will call me and then you may never hear from them again. That may be enough for those others. It takes much longer. Mm. So it's just having that support. And I find the difficulties come within the home 
because we are all such different grievers. So one will say maybe the husband might be more of a practical griever, so mm. he likes to keep himself busy, mm. whereas the wife, like myself, might be a very emotional griever. And um, and she's feeling it all the time, and she's struggling to get through the day, and that's where conflict can occur. Mm. So sometimes people reach out to me because they just feel so alone and unsupported in the home. But it's, my suggestion yeah. to that is just, just be there. That's mm. all you have to do is be there and understand. The the practical aspects uh, of uh, a pet passing away as well. I know that our, our fellow was, he was unwell for a while, but we weren't expecting him to die. All of a sudden yeah. he, he dies and we don't know what to do because we hadn't thought it through, Amber. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so, you know, there are so many people again this Christmas who may like myself, also possibly be facing into their last Christmas with their companion animals. And anticipatory grief is just horrendous. It can be horrendous. It can take over. So you know you're going to lose your pets in that. Yeah, absolutely. And so the important thing to remember there is that our dogs live in the moment. They don't sit around worrying about what's going to happen to them. But unfortunately, our dogs feed off our emotions. So if you are like me, possibly facing your last Christmas, live in the moment. Just hug your dog, love them, tell them you love them, thank them for their friendship and just try and enjoy the Christmas as best as possible. Now, research has also shown that people who seek support before an event hope far better afterwards. Right, very good. And can people make contact with you, Anne-Marie, for example? Absolutely. That is part of my job. I support people before the event. Right. Yes, I can. I support senior ageing, end of life. Now, the important thing to bear in mind there is that your vet is the most important professional ever in your animal's life. So make sure that your dog is having its checkups, it has adequate pain relief and it's comfortable in the home. But as regards yourself, I mean, caregiver burden exists amongst animal owners. It's certainly a very real thing. So Mm. I'm there to support people through that. And I support people with that difficult, horrendous, when, when will I know it's time? Yeah, a listener was on to say, we lost our dog. She was 17 and a half. My daughter's boss gave her the Friday off and told her to get all her grieving done and her crying done over the weekend and be back on Monday. Uh, The worst part are that my memories... Uh, my memories on Facebook uh, keep uh, coming up because I've been putting up pictures for years and they're coming back to haunt me at this point. I miss her so much, says a listener. Yes. But I think, I believe it's important to have those rituals. I believe it's important to do things like um, photo books and memory boxes Mm. and, you know, and um, create, Creativity is so underestimated. Um, I believe it's very important. You see, we we try to get through the day as best we can. I believe it's very important to lean into your grief and intentionally grieve. If you can do that for 15 minutes a day, if you could just find quiet time for 15 minutes a day, just lean into how you're feeling, articulate your pain and your feelings. Because if we don't deal with this, it's going to keep coming up and it affects daily life. So allow yourself to grieve. Uh, Absolutely. 
Know that what you're feeling is perfectly normal. You are not being crazy or stupid. You are completely justified in your loss. And give yourself that time. If you could literally take 15 minutes out of your day to sit quietly on your own and purposefully grieve. Even if you want to maybe journal, if you could use three words just to articulate how you're feeling in that 15 minutes and come back to it every day and watch your healing process. Yeah, another listener wants to say, uh, I hear you, Fran, with Anne-Marie. We lost our dog last September. We were never as upset as adults. We had him 13 years, absolutely devastated as a family. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Yeah. It's, so, it's such a long time. I yeah. mean, that that animal is your constant companion. They're your daily routine. Mm. You see them and are with them more than anyone else. Mm. and they love us unconditionally and they don't judge us. I mean, we get more love from an animal than we do even our own partners. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If my dog could have told all the secrets I told him, I'll tell you, I'd be in fair fair trouble, Anne-Marie, that's for sure. If he could talk. Um, Just in terms of people making contact with you again, Anne-Marie, will you remind us of that? Yes, so they can will always get me to Resting Pets Crematorium here in Washford. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eamon provides a fantastic service there. He is such a kind, caring man. And his business came about through his own loss. So I can always be contacted. And again, that's very important part of what we were talking about, the ritual of yes. mourning. You know, arranging your, your little burial or arranging your cremation. Yes, and, and that's um, restingpets.ie, yeah. isn't it? That's resting resting pets. pets. Okay, and yeah, that's an option yeah. for people as well if they want to have their Absolutely. pet uh, cremated. Uh, Anne-Marie, it's, it's a delight to talk to you because, as I say, when our dog passed away some years ago, I mean, I'm, I'm still not over it. In fact, when I drive through Cashel every morning, somebody walks a dog exactly like him. And every single morning I'm confronted with the memory. It's amazing, you know. Anne-Marie, look after yeah. yourself and a happy Christmas to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye to you now. Bye-bye. That's Anne-Marie Troy there speaking to us about uh, coping with the grief of losing a pet, particularly, I suppose, at at this time of year. Um, We're hearing about Dewhill Dramatic Society. They're presenting I'm the One for You by Jimmy Keary. And it's happening at Newcastle Community Hall on Saturday the 9th... No, I beg your pardon, is it Saturday? Yeah, Saturday the 10th of September at 8pm. And I believe it's fantastic. And it's directed by an old friend of mine, Will Nugent, as well. So we want to wish them the very, very best. That's Dewhill Dramatic Group in Newcastle Hall on Saturday the 10th. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecone, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecone, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Well, Sheila, as Sheila told you during our news bulletins, the Gardaí conducted a joint agency search operation uh, at a number of premises yesterday morning, assisted 
by the Armed Support Unit, uh, Public Order Unit, the ISPCA, and a number of other bodies. To tell us more, I'm glad to be joined now by Superintendent Willie Leahy. Good morning to you, Willie. Good morning, friend. And thanks for your time this morning. What more can you tell us about what went uh, down yesterday? I'm limited enough because it's an ongoing investigation yes. and I want to be quite clear from the outset but yes, as the media outlets are, are um, outlining it, there was a multi-agency operation took place here in Clamell yesterday uh, it's as a result of a number of weeks and months work uh, with our own uh, staff and the other agencies, uh, the defence forces from Collins' barracks in Cork assisted us, Revenue and Customs assisted us and the ISPCA and all of them gave invaluable assistance throughout the day. There was 10 searches conducted in the Clamell area yesterday morning, commenced around 7 o'clock yesterday morning. There was approximately 60 personnel from all those agencies and and throughout different counties actually assist us in the search. And uh, I think it's on social media there and even in your own outlets there, there was uh, three caravans were seized in the area. Uh, We know they were stolen. Stolen, They were stolen from outside the jurisdiction. There was approximately 2,000... Yours worth of drugs was uh, seized as well, and uh, there was 15 dogs seized and three horses by the SPCA from a welfare point of view. And obviously, it's not just seizing those animals; those animals now have to be treated and cared for. The ISPCA will follow up their work, and then we'll we'll uh, work with them from a, an investigative point of view because the condition that they were in yesterday is totally unacceptable, and it has to be investigated. And hopefully, we can make progress in respect of that. What about arrests, Willie? There was five arrests, Fran, yesterday, yeah. and uh, those arrests range from a, a Section 3 assault that we were investigating for a number of months. It also happened in the Clonmill area. There was two people arrested in respect of the sto- possession of the stolen property, the person arrested in respect of the drugs, and then also for obstruction under the, under the, under the search. Uh, there was an obstruction took place while we were conducting those searches. So that person was arrested, he was brought to Clonmill Garda Station, he was subsequently charged, and he'd be here before the courts. It sounds like there was a substantial amount of intelligence involved in these actions, Willie. I suppose, Fran, um, I'm not going to go into that, but what I can say is that a lot of the time, maybe there's a belief out there that we're we're not doing the work, but I suppose, as I said to you on the radio programme when Mm. I spoke a couple of weeks ago in relation to the issues that were there at the time and are still there, but I'll come to that in a second, Mm. we have to deal with facts, you know what I mean? And the fact that we have is evidence-based and we have to provide a reasonable suspicion, move it on to more evidence then, and then obviously culminate it in searches, arrests, and try and get people before the court. So uh, the great work was being conducted by my members out on the ground in the last number of weeks and months in respect of this. And this is an ongoing uh, operation. It's not just in respect of one location, mm. one particular morning. There will be more searches going forward in the weeks and months ahead and, and con- continue. I suppose when I appeared on your show a number of weeks ago, the issues were in relation to the antisocial behaviour, the begging on, on the centre town and uh, the vagrancy and also rural crime there's a lot of work after being put into that we're running a special operation there for the last seven to eight weeks in respect to that and more or less increasing what we were already doing and I'm glad to say that from our point of view the centre of town has improved considerably there has been a number of detections in respect of begging a number of detections in respect of the misuse of drugs act and there's now a lot of people being directed under the public order act the people that are just loitering there with intent they're being directed to leave and and they're before the courts and will be will be coming before the courts in in the future right and uh, we can expect more action in in the future as well oh without doubt and it's just not unique to Clanmel uh, yeah, to Clanmel and I don't want the story going out there this is all 
called Clamel. I have a large district and I have issues across my district. And I suppose before I came on air, when, when, when you contacted me there, I just looked at it. The operation that we're running, we're, we're just one or two shy of 10 people being arrested in the last five to six weeks for drug driving. And uh, I think there's, there's there's a misconception out there, and I said it to you before, Fran, mm. on your shows, mm. that that a certain type of person that might be down on their luck, or maybe that haven't got fine and haven't got a great financial situation, are involved in the use of drugs. Let that be quite clear. That is not the not the not the fact. As I said to you before, there's people that maybe are dressed very well, working nine to five, Monday to Friday. They go to the pub on the weekend, and they think their their line of coke in the toilet is okay, or they think that it's okay to take a can of or a line of coke and get into the car and drive later on that evening or the morning after and the proof is that in the last number of weeks we have somewhere, it, it, as Stan corrected but it's either 8 or 9 in the Clamell district have been arrested specifically for drug driving yeah. and I think you ran it there at the beginning of the week about the new the new, uh, new technology, new technology. Yes. that was dealing with the, uh, the old technology that we had up until uh, the 30th of November so that old technology that we were using it was effective as well and this new technology that we have in now since the 30th of number, November is even more effective. So I'd be appealing to your listeners this morning, if, if you think that, if a person thinks that they're well-to-do and they think that it's okay to take the line of coke or their, or their tablet or whatever and another class of person is actually the per- people that are under the microscope, that is quite wrong. And it's not. It's also wrong to get in behind the wheel of a car if you have any type of t- drug, uh, drugs on you, whether it's um, legitimate drugs or whether it's illegal drugs to get in and drive and we will be targeting all those areas coming up to Christmas and I'll probably speak to you before the Christmas season in relation to that but just just for your listeners yesterday's operation is an ongoing operation that my staff are carrying out continuously throughout the whole district of, of Clonmel which incorporates the five sub-districts that will continue and as far as when I am on air I'd like to thank the assistance that all those other agencies gave us yesterday morning because definitely their assistance was invaluable. A concern that I I would have and I know that you would have as well I'm sure you're aware of it is but there's threats on social media to people who might have provided intelligence uh, to uh, the guardie those threats there that's completely illegal will you completely illegal and even before you mentioned it Fran when I saw one of them myself yesterday yeah. I asked a person rang me about it and I asked them to to show it to me because I wouldn't be too good now on social media mm. and that is already under investigation is it? Okay. Uh, and I suppose just on that point Fran the, the threat and the concern that you've raised that brings in the intimidation Yes. aspect yeah. and we have protocols in place there for intimidation if, if people uh, if children or wh- whoever brothers or sisters or whoever owe money through drugs and they're being intimidated by certain individuals in the Clamel district or indeed any district in Tipperary or indeed any district in the country there's procedures there in respect of how we deal with it and how we assist the family in respect of it and we have an inspector Inspector James White actually in Turles is the inspector and you know James I well do, course, he's yes. inspector and he's very proactive in that area and I would say intimidation is wrong it shouldn't happen and if people have a concern as regards it happening to them and where do they go our door is always open here in Clamel and my door is always open to discuss that with them yeah and I'm just looking at the screen in front of me a good few people concerned about those threats on social media Willie but you have it in hand we, we, we've yeah. come into an investigation in respect of it and I said it's going to be taken as serious as what we were doing yesterday and what we do every day of the week alright well we look forward to okay. talking to you before Christmas Willie but uh, happy Christmas to you thanks Fran and I, I just saw uh, I was showing social media yesterday and I saw you were enjoying yourself there in a nice coffee shop yesterday morning so <laughs> that I hope Emma gave you the scone and the cup of tea this morning oh don't don't start <laughs> don't start the road thanks Willie 
thank you. Good morning to you, Babaji. Now, that is uh, Superintendent Willie Leahy speaking to us this morning on that um, raid. Yes, it was several raids indeed yesterday. 1800 The text and WhatsApp is 083 We're almost glad to hear from you. Now, over the past few days, we've been covering the shocking story of Kerry children having their mental health assessed through appointments with doctors online to the United Arab Emirates. Now, one of our regular contributors, uh, Edwina McElhinney, uh, is a member of Families Unite for Services and Support uh, Tipperary, and she was in touch to share her thoughts, and uh, Edwina is with me now. Good morning, Edwina. Hi, Sam. How are you doing? And uh, thank you for waiting for us there, by the way, and uh, it's good to talk to you. What do you make of what's going on in Kerry, Edwina? Um, Brian, I suppose overall what's going on in Kerry is not the start of a human life if it melts this day. Um, that's, that's kind of where I see and you know, I think that how those children have and their families have been treated um, since 2016, really, since um, in, in uh, South uh, Kerry. Um, like it just is, like I, I strongly believe like, that there's a human rights issue at this stage. Um, and I'm not sure whether people realise the effects of what has happened to, to those children. I don't think people realise how it has affected those families. Yes, and you, you're referring there to about 1,300 children, in fact, I think. That's, you know, I mean, the diagnosis was incorrect, the medication was incorrect, and their lives have been made more difficult by by a very poor service, I suppose, Edwina. Fran, uh, in a fair, I think that's a huge understatement. Yeah. Um, what has happened to those families it is just undescribable. Um, children were misdiagnosed. They were repeatedly given medications without any follow-up. Um, these medications caused serious damage. Um, it's damage that is, we, there is no measure for it because we nobody knows the effects that these drugs will have had on a young developing brain, on, yes. a, on a young um, body. Um, they were, like, their children were brought into early puberty. How does that, how is that going to affect them long term? Yeah. Um, breast development, milk production in boys and girls. How is that going to affect the growing body physically? How is that going to affect them for the rest of their lives? Um, you talk about the effect that it's had on their mental health. Mm. Um, being consistently let down by people who were supposed to help them. The trust, there is no trust there at the moment. Um, I've spoken to family mem- families down in Kerry and there is no trust. There's been a complete breakdown of trust between the HSE and the service users and you know, that they have, it just is, it's such a desperate situation, Frank. Yeah, and it seems that a, a consultant psychiatrist is what is required there. They can't get one. The HSE telling us that, you know, it looks like it's not going to happen in the near future. So, I mean, okay, we, we've acknowledged that this is happening and it doesn't work, but there's not even light at the end of the tunnel, really. And that position has been open for nearly a decade. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like the, um, the whistleblower, Dr. Sharma, was mm. doing the work of four consultants. Yeah. You know, and like they're just, 
the clinic, there was no clinical oversight. Um, the lady that was involved in who was supposed to be overseeing all of this was involved in the North Kerry also, um, and that the doctor involved in the overprescribing was in North Kerry as well. So there is an investigation so ongoing in North Kerry. Yes, we don't really know the full extent of this really is what, what you're saying to me. Yeah, and I mean, Fran, unfortunately, this isn't just isolated Kerry. Well, that's what I was going to say to you next, Edwina, yeah. Yeah. Um, a review was um, was ordered, I suppose, of all the uh, calves across the country, mm. basically, and they have reviewed 50 sample files in every BHO, and of those, there are five BHOs that have been completed out of nine, and already the Mental Health Commission is involved. So we have more to come. Is that is that what you're telling me? It is. It, 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 Fran, it is going to... It, what happens in Kerry is happen, has happened across the country and this is going to be... In the new year, Like this is going to be big. And it's not... I think it's not any news for people who have been through the CAD system. Um, it's not news for them. It probably will be, it'd be shocking to realise that they weren't the only ones. Um, but for the general public, I, I really think they're going to be disgusted All right. with what has happened. It, it's a human rights issue, friends. There's no two ways about it. Well, that's that's for certain. Edwina, thank you for talking to us today and uh, apologies to listeners there that uh, Edwina's line wasn't all it should be, but uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting to her again very, very soon indeed. We'll take a break and then we'll talk farming. If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now let's talk farming. Glad to be joined by Katrina Morrissey who is editor of the Irish Farmers Journal. Good morning to you, Katrina. Good morning, Fran. And thanks for coming on with me today. Can we start with Mary Lou MacDonald addressing the Irish Creamery Milk Suppliers Association, AGM. What did she have to say, Katrina? How, how did it go down? Um, it actually went down very well. I suppose this is the first time we've seen the uh, Sinn Féin leader address farmers in any you know formal context. Mm. We we see their agriculture spokesperson Matt, Matt Carthy very often and on all kinds of topics. But for Mary Lou, I suppose as leader of the party, to be addressing farmers directly and taking questions from farmers um, was interesting. And she seems to have gone down well. Um, she of course. You know, played to the gallery in the sense mm. of she paid tribute to farmers and said that it was, uh, you know, the, the sector of the economy, I suppose, that had helped the wider economy again and again. And she praised the dairy sector in particular for helping the country come through the financial crisis than, you know, mm. might otherwise have had. But I suppose Sinn Féin's heartland really would be that suckler, western northern um, type farmer with marginal land, peripheral regions, so the suckler and sheep sector. So Sinn Féin, I suppose, not particularly associated with dairy farmers. 
Yeah, it's interesting. She was specifically asked by a farmer, though, about giving it an undertaking where the capital taxes are concerned. What, what was the result of that, Katrina? That's right. I suppose that would be a huge concern for farmers because Sinn Féin's, I suppose, policies are very much on capture or taxing wealth and yes, a lot of talk yeah. about wealth taxes. And farmers are asset rich in their land, so they would be considered wealthy in that sense. Um, and she was tackled on this straight away at, as soon as the question and answer session opened in Limerick at the ICMSA AGM. And one farmer asked her, could she give him a solid ironclad undertaking that capital taxes wouldn't affect farm assets and she said yes working assets farm assets she said they would be distinct from other assets that Sinn Féin would look to capture in a wealth tax so you know I suppose we we do have always the case Fran that the politicians um what's the saying about pros um, that mm. they, they promise everything before yeah, they're elected and then what comes in and what's reality afterwards. But that's what Mary Lou said to farmers at the date. She said that farm assets would be considered separate from other assets for a wealth tax. It's interesting. It plays into your own um, report some, some months ago, I suppose, Katrina, about the, the increase in support among farmers for Sinn Féin, which traditionally that wouldn't have been there. I think it got up to about 16% at one stage, in fact. That's right. And I suppose that's probably indicative of the wider, I suppose, what Sinn Féin would call the appetite for change. Um, So it would be very interesting to see, uh, farmers would have been traditionally not voting Sinn Féin, but it would be very interesting to see if they also go with that uh, opinion that's there. I know Sinn Féin have dipped in the polls in recent weeks, Mm. but it would be very interesting to see if they would follow through on that. And in fact, we have a survey of our own readers coming over the Christmas period, Fran, so keep an eye out for that. We have asked farmers about their voting intentions in the next election. Very good. We look forward to to that. Um, The Minister He's rather tight-lipped on that plan for the 200,000 suckler cow cull that we spoke about last week, Katrina. What's the latest on that? Very much so. Um, So I put a number of direct questions to the Minister for Agriculture yesterday asking him, was he going to follow through on the recommendations that were made? And I'm sure the listeners will remember, but the chief among those, I suppose, were two schemes. One that would see farmers cut down in suckler cow numbers and another would be an exit scheme where they would just leave suckler production altogether. So I put the question to the Minister, was he going to follow through on these um, recommendations? If he was, what would be the compensation payments for farmers who too decide to get out? And where would the money come from um, for for those compensation payments? And in response, I got no direct answers from um, he said that he would uh, he was assessing the reports and he would be looking at them in light of the Climate Action Plan, which we're expecting any day now, really. It's supposed to be published before the end of the year. And this is where the Food Vision reports are feeding into. And, and just to go back, I suppose, Meat Industry Ireland, which is the body that represents mm. the factories, um, have put figures on what they say these call schemes would cost the economy. And they're saying it would amount to $1.5 billion. And that's a combination of reduced beef output, factories closing if they don't have enough cattle to put through, 6,500 job losses and 14,500 farmers leaving the sector. So they're really stark wow. figures. Um, and it's probably no wonder the minister doesn't want to talk about yeah, it. Sure, um, yeah. But we will see now, um, I suppose, in the next week or two with the Climate Action Plan, whether these recommendations make it through to the final action report. Um, I'm also reading uh, today, in fact, I overheard a conversation in the cafe recently about this as well. Thousands of farmers applying to, to acres. But, I mean, will they all get in, Katrina? 
This is the question. So Acres is the new um, agri-environment scheme. It's replacing gloss, which a lot of farmers would would have been in in recent years. Originally, the target um, number of farmers that the Department of Agriculture said would get in would be 30,000 farmers. And that's based on a, a maximum payment of 7,000. Um, now, there is an option for some farmers to do a kind of a group scheme where they would work with their neighbours in, for example, the likes of the Burren, where the maximum payment could be 10,000 per year. Um, but as of as, when we went to print yesterday, the number was over 35,000. And the suggestion that maybe there could be as many as 40,000 farmers have applied for it. Um, will more money be added to the pot? Or... Mm. Will farmers have opted for measures mean that the pot isn't fully exhausted, that there will be enough money to let in those extra five or 10,000 farmers? It's going to be very interesting because, you know, that demand from farmers to be in that agri-environmental scheme is significant. You know, they need it, I suppose, from an income point of view, but it also shows the interest in being in an environmental scheme full stop. There are lots of different measures in it. Um, but the question remains at the moment. The scheme closed at midnight last night to applications, so we're hoping to have final numbers uh, later today on the final application numbers. It'll be interesting. That targeted agricultural uh, modernisation scheme, we spoke about that on, on, on the programme previously as well. There's a ceiling now for those solar panels, is there not? There is a ceiling, but actually it's good news that the ceiling isn't, a bad, isn't bad news because it is a separate ceiling away from the rest of the town. So if a farmer, oh, for example, right. was building a shed um, and had, you know, was applying to TAMS for a grant to, to help him build that shed, that is a separate part to this solar panel fund. So they can go up as far as 90000 on the solar panel fund separately to, you know, the mainstream TAMS right. fund. So yes. it's actually good news. I know a ceiling sounds like it's negative, but it's not. And also the information that we have um, says that it would could be used, that grant could be used to put solar panels on the farm house, not just sheds. So it could be very interesting for farmers, I think. And I know Stephen Robb, my colleague in the Farmers Journal, uh, got some extra information on that uh, solar panel grant late last night. So we're going to have more on that in next week's paper as well. Very good. Just finally, Katrina, I'm reading that the Kerry Co-op uh, CEO is about to depart. What does that mean for, for, for the shareholders there? Um, I suppose it's another development in the Kerry story. Yeah. Um, it is... Again, I'm fine. I know I say this every time when we talk about mm. Kerry, but it's yeah. a very complicated scenario down there. Thomas Hunter McGowan has been there for the last five years as CEO and Secretary of the Co-op. He leaves it when it's at a crossroads. I suppose it wants to restart negotiations with Kerry Group about buying into the Irish business. Mm. The question now is, you know, if he's leaving, who leads the, the negotiations? There's a man's name floating around, John McKenna, who might be the man to possibly take up that job. And the board is still looking, you know, still, I suppose, hearing from those shareholders who want to call the special general meeting. So a lot to be played out, I think, in the next week on that front. It'll be interesting. The saga goes on. Katrina, it's always good to talk to you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Good Thanks, morning sir. to you. Katrina Morrissey there is editor of the Irish Farmers Journal. It's on your shelves right now. And all those topics that we, we looked at there contained in the uh, pages there. Uh, news and information is coming up. 
Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Sheila. Welcome back to uh, Tip Today. Um, Gary was on to us from Tipperary and he says, uh, good morning, Fran. The worst thing anybody can say to you after losing a dog is it's only a dog. Oh, I know, Gary. That is so annoying indeed. In fact, big reaction to that conversation about the uh, bereavement and the grieving you feel when you lose uh, a pet. Um, dear God, Fran, we've all been uh, truly heartbroken with the loss of a pet. It's so hard, but come on. Time off work and counselling? It's just bonkers. Absolutely nuts. Do you know, I don't... I, I think you're wrong about that. I think you're wrong about that because I've known people um, who have grieved profoundly uh, following the loss of a pet and it can have just as much an effect as losing uh, a loved one, I think. So if they choose to... You know, a veil of counselling and whatever, sure, isn't that, isn't that up to themselves? If it fixes them, if it helps them as well. Fran, I lost my dog of 14 years and what kills me is that she was dead when I came home from work. Oh, you poor dog. And uh, I wasn't with her to hold her at the time. Somebody else telling me that uh, we lost our dog last September. We were never as upset. Uh, some Another listener saying, I lost my wife. On the 28th of February in 2020, and I lost my best friend and buddy, my golden retriever as well, on the 17th of March in 2022, and I'm still heartbroken and devastated. And I'm sure Christmas will be uh, another milestone for you where that is concerned. So we'll, we'll be, our thoughts are with you, as they say. Only three, three double one, double three, double one. And, uh, uh, the uh, you can uh, speak to Emma on eighteen hundred nine three eight double o seven. Of course, we're always delighted to hear from you. Now I'm delighted to be joined by Muriel Cuddy, CEO of Marita uh, eighty twenty. Good morning to you, Muriel. Good morning, Fran. And good to see you today as well. Taking on too much and all of that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, what about it? Are we all doing it? I think we are. You know, it's funny. You know, you were talking about dogs there a minute ago. Just something yeah. came to mind about how upsetting it is for people. We had two big huskies at home. Don't ask me. I think Siberian and Alaskan husky or whatever. But the Siberian husky got shot. Probably about two and a half years ago now, God. right? Yeah, not even going to go into that now. The upset was so much over at the time because wow. I've got all the kids. But didn't the other, my daughter was convinced because they were her dogs, but she was convinced the girl dog was grieving massively for the other dog that got killed uh, to the extent she lost so much weight that they God. actually thought there was something wrong. Oh. Uh, she was trying to get her pregnant she couldn't. There were so many different things. And she only came to when she had the next litter of pups. We got another dog and she had litter of pups or whatever and she came to. But they actually felt the dog was, was grieving, grieving yeah. massively for about 12 months. Yeah, they couldn't. She didn't. They said she didn't smile, the kids. 
So even when we went, went for a walk, said she's still not smiling, ma'am. Look, she's still whatever. So they were adamant, yes. Yeah. So Isn't that funny? I'm sure other people yeah. have the same experience, but yeah, that was, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure it does happen yeah. because, you know, our bond with them is absolutely in- incredible. Mm. Um, we are taking on too much, Muriel. We're driving ourselves nuts, aren't we? Yeah, and you know, isn't it this time of the year? Yeah. And burn out and all the different bits and pieces and, you know, the desire to have control over everything. Yeah. We spoke about tidy desks and tidy houses. and Me being a disaster, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, for everyone, isn't it like, as parents and I suppose as mothers especially, you literally think nobody can do it as good as yourself. Yeah. So, like, you try to do all the work and everything. Nobody can do the shop because you're not going to get the right stuff, which is actually true. Like, the men aren't mm. going to bring the right stuff home most of the time but even as in relation to cleaning the house emptying a dishwasher cooking a dinner all the different things for the next three weeks how much are we going to take on that we can't delegate that Mm. we can't say to somebody listen can you do that or how many times can we learn to say no because that's one of the things because when you say yes yes you say yes in the initial and you're like oh my god what am I after committing to Mm. so be it like sideline stuff you know, it could be charity stuff, it could be something at home, it could be a mother, it could be a sister. Can you mind the kids for the night? Yeah, I can. And then you actually realise, oh my God, I have 50 other things to do tonight. And when you say yes, and that dreaded feeling is there, um, it makes you nearly feel sick and anxious and stressed. Of course it does, yeah. And people are afraid to say no, Fran. But you know, when you actually get used to saying no, that you start prioritising different things for yourself, the initial no is really hard. Mm. But when you actually get used to it and you're very confident in your no, I'm sorry, I can't, or don't even say the sorry, Mm. because why are you sorry? You're not. They've asked for your time. And you just can't do it. And you just can't do it. It's no, I can't do it. The person goes away, you know, they're gone, Mm. and you feel very happy with yourself that you've actually said no, and you've gained that time back for yourself, you know. So, yeah, we've got to get it right and start prioritising. And I think women are, 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 you know, more culpable here in that they take Mm. on too much, particularly at Christmas. Now, guys, leave it to them. You know, whether it's the gifts or the food and the meal and all all of that kind of stuff, that is... Well, you don't ask for help. That's Mm. one of the things. And we want perfection. And we have this idea that Christmas needs to be perfect. Mm. And if we don't do it, it won't be perfect. But what is perfection? Mm. Because things happen anyway, right up to Christmas and through Christmas. And we never get that anyway, do we? So I think you have to take the step back because if you don't, you're going to be sick. Mm. That's one of the things. And you don't realise burnout is there or you don't realise how miserable you feel until you're so anxious, say you've committed to a night out. And like three or four days before the night out, you feel sick. Like, why did I say I'd go and I can't go? And how do I get out of it? And these thoughts are all going around your head for maybe two days beforehand. You shouldn't feel like that. Mm. Like, we should be able to be socially and emotionally with it, that we can actually go and enjoy things. You know, we should be able to commit to a night out and say, yes, I'll go and I'll really enjoy that. Or go to a match the kids are playing or go to the Christmas concert. Like, I know already in my world, there's one Christmas concert I haven't been at and there's another Christmas concert I need to get to. And already I'm even anxious about how do I fit just something as simple as that in. You and know, you're running a business as well. Run the business. Yeah. You have all the kids and all the bits and pieces. So it's about, again, that prioritising thing. But I did stress an awful lot more. And when I got sick that time a couple of years ago, it made mm-hmm. me realise, what can I do or what do I do now in my world to stop a lot of that? So a lot of it is stepping in over the football boots and like maybe the dog... Mm dog of bag nuts inside the front door and not having the house perfect like I used to have to have every Christmas light perfectly positioned and every single thing where it needed to be and I'm not anymore Mm. I come in and I used to have to do two loads of wash and there might be one or I might say to the boys you're on dishwasher you're on whatever and I'm on whatever How did you change yourself to come to this position then? 
I think you have to switch off from the bigger stuff. Yeah. And you know, even when I have the lads with me in the kitchen, I have to realise I cannot do perfection because I'm going to be sick. Mm. Can't do that. Even in the morning when I see 10 jobs when I'm going out the door, I have to leave them mm. and say, right, they'll still be there when I come back. Mm. Or I might message and say, have those worktops clean or you're mm. in trouble. Mm. Or, do you know, and they won't be clean, Fran, <laughs> yes. but they'll be tidied. Yeah, I know. You never I get know. the perfection. But if I don't actually start delegating and say to the lads, start doing things, I'm, I can't do it myself. It's 10 or 11 o'clock and you're falling into bed yourself and you're sick right. and you're, you know. And when you say you make yourself sick, what are you talking about there? I am talking about that you actually make yourself sick, right? I, I was saying to you earlier on, we have a health screen at the minute or for the next couple of weeks coming through clinic um, from one of the big companies or whatever in mm. town. And 100 people came through the screen in the last few days, right? I'm finding four out of five people have health markers that are in the wrong direction. Four out of five? Four out of five, yeah. And I thought after COVID and we were kind of getting back to normal that we'd come back to normal here. This isn't this isn't like an area as in nutrition and diet and alcohol and things like that might be some element of it. But people are stressed and anxious as in the overload of how much they have to do. And that's what you're finding time and time again, as in, I have work and I have this and I have that. When they sit into the chair, I say to them, like, your liver markers are wrong. Why are they wrong? Or, you know, your cholesterol levels are wrong or your blood pressure is wrong. Blood pressure, so many people is wrong, Fran, that it's just actually scary. And when I go through it, it's like not prioritising themselves. They haven't got enough time. I didn't think to drink water. I didn't actually have a lunch. I didn't actually have whatever. That's one side. So some people live on coffee and when they're stressed and anxious, they turn to like no food. And then other people turn to, turn to like the emotional side of eating everything. Food, yeah. yeah, literally. So when they go home at night and sit down, the only way to actually come down and switch off before bed is alcohol. So it's the vodka, or it's the wine or whatever it is. And that's what, what's affecting like the liver, um, your liver enzymes, you know, the cells in the liver, mm. we're finding they're wrong in people. And why are they wrong? Like it's not the alcohol side, like non-alcohol fatty liver is becoming a bigger and bigger issue right so that's eating the wrong foodstuffs right. stress is the next one so if we're stressed and we're overdoing it what do we take if we have a headache well you're taking paracetamol you're taking nurofen or yeah. you're taking something along those lines mm. well and that affects the liver it's like all of these things either affect the gut or the liver which in turn are going to affect your health which makes you feel miserable which is the vicious cycle of start all over again so that's what I'm saying is try and take a step back so we've three weeks ahead can we make goals of the small medium and long term so what needs to be done today? So we all start thinking like, Lord, I've three weeks to go. I've so many things to do. That's three weeks down the line. Forget about it. Pull back a little and say, right, what can I do today? Can I actually go shopping today and buy this anti-stuff or do? Sorry. Can I actually go shopping today and do whatever? Yeah. Mm. Um, but if you can't do that today and you're working on whatever time tonight, well, then forget about it and put it on the list for Saturday or put it on the list for Sunday. You know, if we don't start making goals and writing things down, we are going to be... In a yes. miserable place by Christmas Day, yeah. And you don't have to be Nigella Lawson on Christmas Day either, do you? you I know? think simplify it. Yeah. I know if you're, if you're, the biggest thing about Christmas is family. Mm. And like that man that rang in there a minute ago, yeah, like... losing his wife and his pet. And, he doesn't care yeah. what he has for he Christmas Day. Couldn't give a hoot, I'm No, sure. if you yeah. could bring, bring that, you know. Yeah. And you do find that once you lose people, you know. The, the, the Christmas traditions change. I think traditions are more important that you actually create memories yeah. rather than what you're actually eating and that, you know. So, like, it doesn't really matter if it's a perfect roast potatoes and all the different bits and pieces, does it? It's who's around the table and who's with you. Yeah. So I think Christmas morning. But we as Irish people are good at that too, to be mm. honest, Fran. I think yeah. Christmas is about family, isn't it? I suppose, yeah. But the pressures are there and people put them on themselves as well, you know. But They do, but yeah. that's why we're sick. Yeah. And that's why we're feeling miserable and that's why we're taking all the wrong things to actually counteract it. I put a post up yesterday on Facebook about um, the liver 
um, and what we need to take and kind of rehab it as in take milk thistle and start taking it now yeah. and even with hydration levels like use your Himalayan salt and drink your two litres if you can and then have your alcohol if you want it and stuff like that but do the small stuff mm. behind the scenes to try and make It's interesting things. what you say about the over-the-counter medication though I mean many of us it's yeah. it's a daily ritual. We take paracetamol or we take, you know, Nurofen or we take... But mm. we do it every day. They're poisons. Yeah. They're po- and I, I say it all the time, literally, like, the Nurofens in them, they'll kill, th- like, the lining of your gut, literally, like, where do the ulcers and all the different bits and pieces come from, you know? Paracetamol's the same, like, the Nexium. Remember I said it last yeah, week, yeah, like, yeah. but you're just masking the symptoms. Yeah. So you, if you have a headache, where is it coming from? Do you know where it's coming from? Like so many people take paracetamol every day and they're dehydrated. And I say it to them, like, it's your hydration levels. They'll say to me, Muriel, I feel miserable, I feel stressed, anxious, I'm not eating right, I wake in the morning at three o'clock, all these things. And I look at it and I'd say, not only are you dehydrated, but because you're eating the wrong foods at the wrong time of the day, your blood sugars are unstable, you've nothing, your your body is 70% water. Like a car is not going to run on 70% empty. So every single cell in our body is crying out for water. And if you're not hydrated enough, all of these things straight away will fall back into line. I had one man in yesterday, if he's listening, he'll know exactly who I'm talking about. He changed a few simple things like his hydration status and not eating high carb food in the evening time and he said to me Muriel I feel so much better he's pain up his right leg into his hip or whatever he said I can't believe the pain is gone he said I've been to the doctor I've been to two or three different places I've shaken Nurofen and all the bits and I couldn't get rid of it he said the pain is actually gone in my leg and I'm feeling it and I'm tapping it and I can't understand why and I'm sleeping through the night and part of what he did was he's hydrating properly he's drinking the two litres of water and he's using the Himalayan salt and that in the water so he's getting his electrolyte balance right at this stage he's eating differently as in he's not eating the high carb foods at night so he's generous fish, salmon, veg things like that Mm. if he's still hungry when it comes to like 8 or 9 o'clock he's having wheat bix or porridge or maybe a slice of brown bread or something that's high fibre, you know, that'll save him through the night and that. And he said, I'm sleeping. There's none of that roller coaster of whatever. So it's simple, simple stuff. Is it incredible? But still people have to come to you and get you to plan for them almost. Yeah, yeah so all the time. I think we're so busy we don't come out of our heads. Yeah. So I think it's the little help, especially with adults. Like we give mm. so much of ourselves to everyone else and the, the world is such a rat race at the minute. I had a girl yesterday like, and she said to me, Muriel, I know all of this. I do the organic farming. I have a catering business. Mm. So I actually know what to do. But she said, as you put it out here in front of me, you're actually making me take time for me. Mm. So you're putting a plan in place that's actually helping me. And she said, it's not the kids and it's not whatever. You're making me do it for me. So maybe that's the support side, Fran, that people just don't have the time. Maybe so. Or don't feel they deserve it. I don't know. It's interesting. I had a colleague years ago and she'd come in, open her bag in the morning, she'd take out Gaviscon, uh, she, she'd take out paracetamol, she'd take out cough lozenge and stuff. And that was before she took out her phone. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. this was the daily ritual. Ritual. Yeah. Yeah, somebody said to me, do the, oh, day, the Red know. Bull as well. Do, well, somebody said they had two coffees in the morning time. Yeah. Um, and the coffees gave them a pain in their head. They knew that. So they took paracetamol after having the two coffees. Uh, and then at 11 o'clock it was time for food. But they felt they were able for food then by 11 o'clock because they had the coffee and they had the paracetamol. But they knew the coffee was... And, you know, I started laughing. I suppose I'm very empathetic and whatever with people mm. a lot of the time. But then other times I'm like, OK, now can we pull back now? <laughs> It's a kick in the backside. Yes, actually think about what you're doing and think about whatever. And, you know, most of the time we're adults, we do actually know where we're going wrong. But then on the hydration status, people don't, Trent, to be honest. Don't, yeah, they no. actually look at the stats on the... And, do you know, it's something that I can't understand and I suffer from this myself is that, I mean, it's a simple thing. Drink more bloody water. But for some reason or other, we forget it or we, do. we don't bother. Or tea, or we, like this yeah. time of the year. 
tea, tea soup, mm. any of those things that have fluid in them. Yeah. Just literally get it into us, yeah. But yeah. As, as, as much as possible. Yeah. Looking at the screen as well, it comes up now since you began talking to us about the, the famous injection for weight mm. loss and stuff. Um, we, we keep being questioned about it. Are you are you getting Yeah, so we're inundated literally, yeah. And we've only taken on what we can take on before Christmas, but January is literally nearly booked out at this stage. Right. And that again will tell you how many people out there are in trouble and how many people actually yes. feel they need a tool to get them to the next level. We've had people that are in tears, Fran. I mean in tears that I have never seen like in relation to the other side. Yes. That they've battled with this all their life and this is going to be you know, the, tur- the turning point that um, people just don't see them for who they are. They don't want to see Christmas, literally. Don't want to get dressed, don't want to see the kids, all the different bits and pieces. So for me, if a tool like the weight loss injection will work, that's brilliant. I suppose to be realistic and to manage people's expectations is a really big side of what we do. Yes. So of the people that we've seen, it does take about a month for it to bed in, for you actually to start seeing proper results. But we can see already four out of five people are responders. Maybe one might be a non-responder. There's 5% that it just won't work for. So we okay. have to manage expectations in relation to that too. Not very many, and even in the whole, you know, the overall whatever. But you do have to realise that when you have people coming through to say, listen, there is maybe... You right. Know, are there side effects that we should be aware the of? The only side effect really, and that's, that's coming back again and again, is the nauseousness. Mm. But when you're nauseous, it's actually working. So that's good. Right. It's not any harm to be nauseous, you know, because it's, it's it's supposed to regulate your appetite. It's supposed to, you know, dampen down everything. The satiety and all that is, is there. But it's working for the other people. So that's a massive thing to me. Again, for the other people that it's working on, there's a lot of work to do in relation to the education side. Yes. Because there are a lot of bad habits and there are a lot of issues around food and the emotional side because it's there so long. Mm. So that has to be worked on. So anyone that's just offered the injection or, you know, somebody said to me this morning, how much is that in Spain? Mm. You know, for me, that's not what it's about because that's the quick fix of the fat burners and everything that's right. been there for the last 15 years. Are you saying to years. me that potentially you could be eating very badly and not nutritiously and take this injection and lose weight? That's and, my and that, biggest That's going worry. to cause other that's, health problems. That's my biggest worry. Okay. I had somebody in yesterday that was very slim, appeared really healthy in all the bits and pieces, but everything was out of kilter, as in cholesterol was like seven, visceral fat levels like were heading into the red, uh, that kind of thing. But they were nearly underweight, but their diet was literally like crossings and Red Bull. So, like, that's not going to help. It doesn't work like that. Like, you've got to get the bigger picture of what you need to eat. But it's easier to do it when you start in the injection, you see, because you're not hungry. Okay. So that's the biggest thing. You're not craving the sugar, Fran. So if you can get the education piece done right, right when you're on that. And you know the other concern, and somebody met me in a supermarket recently and asked me about this as well, it doesn't make you hate food. Sure it doesn't. No, not at all. No. You, you're just not hungry. You just feel sated. Yeah, so you, you, say you anyone that has been pregnant at yes. any stage, say in the women's side of things, you know what it's like to be pregnant. So there's times when you just can't, and especially the latter stages, you're so full, you just literally don't want food. So it doesn't change your, your um, what would you say, it doesn't change your relationship with food. Yes. Yes, of course, and you'll still walk through and you'll, you just, you don't fancy the same things as you did before. Or the same amount. Or the same, yeah. The amount yeah. definitely reduces. Yeah. And when you feel too full, which is like after like three or four bites, it's actually giving you an idea of what a portion size is like. Because sometimes people's portion sizes, and definitely yeah. a lot of the time when they come into us, they just don't realise how much food you should actually be eating. And sometimes it's a lot less, especially if you've got somebody, like somebody on a Monday that was only five foot tall, you know, and they were maybe four or five stone overweight. At five foot, if you're six foot tall, 
you're not going to see that weight. Right. But at five foot, like, there's of a big difference, you, are, yes. you know. Yeah. But, uh, um, Mary was on and said that uh, I've had a very, very stressful couple of months and uh, still going through it in the last week. But I've learned to ask for help, um, particularly this time of year. And everybody was offering me help when I asked. And uh, I thought I had to do it myself, but I don't. Maybe it's a control thing um, that I can do it better and I can do it better than the kids and stuff. But learning to ask for help is a lesson worth coming that's up with. Isn't that very good? That's goose pimples for me now because I just is think it? if anybody's listening to Mary, that's literally, we all want to help, don't we? Yeah. Literally. So yeah. just this morning, if you are drowning in everything, and you know even the monetary side of things and Christmas, Fran, oh God, yeah. that's such yeah. a worry for people, you know, but like... Borrowing and credit borrow, cards yeah. and all of that. And, yeah. and if you can't, don't do it, like, and do mm. ask for help, like, and if there are other ways outside the box that you can actually, you know, get ties or get whatever, just stop. Mm. The worry is the biggest piece. That if you can just calm down and ask for help that mm. for me is just just a final thing and it's a conversation again that I was part of yesterday um, that we might feel oh Christmas is coming so I won't bother doing anything for the next few months or something because you know I'm going to like live it up for Christmas what, what do you say what do you say to that, that? drives me mad Does because it? you know the way people diet, up, diet to get into the Christmas dress I don't, yeah. or the lads now and the t-shirts and all the bits and pieces yeah. or whatever but you're killing it before you start Yeah. like um, anyone that goes on holidays if you go on holidays for two weeks and you eat all wrong and drink all around you for two weeks if you get back straight into the realm of where you need to be and eating mm. well, the day you're back or the day after you're back, that's only bloat. That literally will go within the next week. Right. So you stand back up in the scales or whatever, everything's back to where it needs to be. It's the same for Christmas. Even from the week before Christmas, say, the 19th, 20, mm. 20th, you take your two full weeks until the 2nd of January, say, because it's mm. very hard New Year's Day, and then you get back to normality. That will go. But if you're going to start early December, expect to have a stone weight to lose like when you come to the 2nd of January. Because and that's hard. It's too hard. It's yeah. just not worth it. And the eighty twenty, so like just even be good during the week mm. and do what you like on your nights out or your Friday, yeah, Saturday yeah. night or whatever. But on Monday morning, like have your bottle of water and eat your porridge and your wheat bix. Mm. And you know if you start the day well, get your eggs or whatever it is, is into you in the morning time. Commit just to the breakfast. The rest of the day falls into line after that. Very good. Uh, by, by the way, just on a personal note, um, I'm having my porridge every morning yeah, with my blueberries, but I love bananas and I'm putting a banana in. Is that is that Morning time's absolutely fine. Is that okay? Absolutely. And you know, yeah. bananas are full of like so many good vitamins and potassium. Potassium, yeah, Potassiums yeah. and all the bits, yeah. So yeah. banana in the morning is fine, but if you were to have it before you're going to bed, well then it's probably too heavy for your system. Right, okay. But you love it burnt But you have no worries time. about the sugars in it? No, no, not, not in the morning. Oh. I love fruit. Fruit yeah. is really good for you, yeah. but it's just eat at the right time. T- right See, time I'm always concerned. If I like something, I'm concerned. Yeah, sugar, <laughs> sugar. Yeah, but are you staying awake longer? Like, are you like even here? Like, you're you're not tired or no, don't I, lose I concentration? It, I found it great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I there you are. Huge so difference. If it's working for you, so yeah. you're doing it. Uh, if people want to talk to you, Muriel, how yes. how can they do that? Um, so call us on oh five two six one four eight double eight one. One four eight double eight one. Is yeah, it? That's it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so give me that again, Muriel. Yeah, so it's oh five two six one. Yeah. Four eight double eight one. Double eight one. Okay, yeah. gotcha. And Emma will have that uh, as well. Of course, we got those unkind comments again after you leaving last week. <laughs> yeah. You know about oh, if people are overweight, they need to just. Step I've back been to stopped the in the supermarket, Fran. God, oh I've literally, I've gotten it everywhere. Why are you doing this? Um, thought you weren't into like the other side of whatever medication, yeah. all the bits and pieces. Um, I am. Um, I suppose so emotional about this I could probably write a book on it I deal with so many people that are overweight and it's exactly the same as anorexia, Mm. bulimia um, alcoholism 
There's and an obviously, issue. I can't see the people who are critical. But I mean, when you meet them, are they skinny people who like have some no pe- idea? Some people what? they're of a normal weight. So a normal weight to me, you could be a stone overweight mm. in your head. Everybody's completely different. And I say to people, your normal weight might be twelve stone. For somebody else, their happy weight could be ten. Somebody else could be fourteen. Yes. But if you are grossly obese, that you can't get into an airplane seat or you can't go out for a walk, or there's there's issues there that it's playing with your mind that you can't play with the kids or whatever. Yes. Like two of the girls that were in this week, they have young children and it's affecting their whole life and right. they've tried everything under the sun. So the people that say it to me, they're sorry they have actually they actually stop and say it to me because they're not dealing with it. Right. So if you're not living in a bigger body, don't comment. All right, fair play. Uh, 52 one. if you yes. want to talk to Muriel or Charlotte or anybody uh, part of the team there at Marito 8020 in Mill. We'll take a break. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Drive Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Now, just on a personal note, um, Muriel O'Connor and myself, we were supposed to appear uh, tonight at the Rag Thurlis uh, for a, uh, a dance gig along with uh, Andy Feary. Um, but because of the dire weather warnings, um, sub-zero temperatures and black ice and all of that kind of thing, you know, in the interest of looking after our, our friends and our fans, uh, we said that we would uh, postpone it to another time. So that's not happening tonight, just in case you were planning to go along there. Now, the other uh, Muriel, Muriel Cuddy was speaking, was there just a, a while ago about people being overwhelmed I suppose with uh, taking on so much particularly at this time of year but one of our listeners on to say Fran I feel so overwhelmed a lot of the time I'm juggling so much family work etc flat out seven days a week and I feel terrible if I said no to somebody to babysit for instance my partner is self-employed and I work full-time but I also help my partner whenever I can uh, we have three kids it's just manic it's definitely making me so anxious and unwell. I feel so bad that I don't have the time to visit family, for instance. I literally just don't have the time. I rarely sit down at night. We aren't really drinkers, but it's just go, go, go every day. I know that I do too much, but I just can't stop. And it's all falling apart. Isn't that that terrible that somebody feels that anxious and overwhelmed and... uh, in trouble at this time of uh, year. Um, we wish you well. Uh, Muriel was making the point, but I know it's easy to say that you, you don't have to have everything perfect, you know. You don't. And are the kids doing enough to help you, for instance? Are you are you doing more than your part? I don't. I, I don't know. But maybe you need to to look at look at all of that and make sure you stay well yourself. Uh, Eamon was in uh, Clonelty for the um, vintage rally. And when we heard about a special fundraiser taking place this uh, coming weekend, here's just a taste of what to expect on this Saturday's Down Your Way. Coming up to this Saturday night, um, a special a special weekend in Llanolty. Tell me about it. Special weekend. Uh, we're glad to be back after all the years with the full uh, ensemble uh, on Saturday night. And uh, sure, we have the big truck and tractor and car run again, which is always a major attraction. And uh, going from that... We have the yard at the back of Simon's there with a big marquee in there and there's a 
over 20 or 30 uh, stalls going in there with all Christmas stuff and for anyone that wants a tipple with it drop a mulled wine and tea and all that type of stuff there and some choir singing along with the uh, crib and this year the crib is special to it's a live animal crib but the kids is doing it from the school there in Tenerbahce this year and uh, we're looking forward to seeing that Saturday night this Saturday night this Saturday night uh, coming and uh, to tell you the truth uh, there's a bit of a lead on from it Eamon because there's a little girl there uh, by the name of Alicia Reardon there in Clanolty and she's suffering from spina bifida hydrocaplin and uh, because we're putting up the big marquee we decided to let the, them use it for the Sunday night and there's a trade session there as well so we're selling tickets and things there, trying to get things together and make a few pounds for her at the minute. And I spoke actually to her dad, uh, Joe, last night and her mum, Jacqueline, and I've never met them, but I'm looking forward to meeting them on the, on the Saturday night. I've never met a little girl neither, Alicia, and uh, we're hoping, we're hoping she's well enough uh, to get her into the truck on Saturday night and she can do the run. Mm-hmm. So a little bit of excitement there, and I'm told she's really bubbly and lovely. So looking forward to seeing her. So, yeah. As we've heard on the first three parts of the programme, we we were at the rally, and it was a huge success story for Clonolty Ross Moore again. But this is, in a sense, another rally. This is a, another rally, but at night time. Mm-hmm. Uh, which brings a lot of danger in itself. You have to be very careful. Uh, it takes a lot of organising, and there's a lot of great, great people there, great stewards and... and uh, the, the, the lads in the trucks, like, there, uh, Dinia Heron there and Paulie Flanagan, like, they're just brilliant. The lads, they're really wrapped up with all that and they're brilliant, serious amongst the people around them. And Ashley in, in, in the club there, which is, she does an awful lot of work there with the lads. And uh, as we said before, an awful lot of work goes on behind the scene, mm-hmm. you know? Of course, TJ at the top. TJ's at the top there. He's the one with the big stick mm-hmm. and they're keeping us all in line. And then we've Mary Hennessy and Trish and all the rest of the lads there, uh, we all play our own part mm-hmm. we all play our own part and uh, yeah we're looking forward to it we're actually looking forward to it now you know so does the drive from from Clenalty tell us about the plan on the night on Saturday night uh, we'll be kicking off around half or five o'clock all the trade stands will be coming in we have to get them in long before the crowd starts to come didn't get the crib sorted out but we'll be uh, assembling all the trucks and the cars up in the hurling field in Clenalty and all the tractors are just down across the road in another field for safety. Mm-hmm. And uh, we hope to have everything kicking off around 7 o'clock. The trucks will take off. They'll come across into Borna and Holy Cross and from there into Cashel. The people in Cashel, once they know we're coming, the streets to be full. Absolutely mm-hmm. full. They really enjoy it. Uh, they'll come back across in for Ballock and hopefully meet the tractors. We'll, we'll get the two lots coming in together uh, whilst people are coming out from the church. Mass will be over. And then that's, that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the spectacle will take place then. People love to see him. So you have the coloured lights and all on the track, Christmas lights, everything? Every absolute thing is coloured and, and done. And there's spot prizes and there's trophies and there's all different things for the best tractors mm-hmm. and cars and all that type of stuff mm-hmm. uh, on the night. So, yeah, it is, it is a fair spectacle. We're just hoping for a fine night, that's all. Yeah, fine night. Well, they had it, of course, in Kerr uh, this weekend and indeed... Uh, uh, sure, lots of places, and uh, have it in Neen, of course, a big one again with uh, with, with Albert Purcell and all his group. They have indeed, like, you know, it's going on now all over the place, and I wish all the rest of them the best of luck. Care was a major success, and uh, they've done very well out of that. And uh, look, there's a handful of them going on, even down uh, 
um, in South Tip and back across into into Mallow and things over the weekend on a rail. So look, and hopefully they'll all do well. All do well. Absolutely. And then of course it's all uh, people just put their hand in the pocket, throw it a few bob, and that kind of thing. That's never a problem, man. Mm-hmm. It's never ever a problem. Like um, people are very very good to us. And as I said, we started to sell tickets there for Alicia, and uh, we had five hundred. I think they're gone mm-hmm. at the minute, and our ten are a ticket. And uh, people are just buying them there just to support the girl. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like you know, I know, I know uh, she has a, an infection at the minute, and if they can sort out the infection, then I think she's going for a little operation again after that. So please God, she'll be oh, she'll be okay. Yeah, and of course we wish her every success and support as well, and and, and all of that. Uh, you're an amazing group of people, uh, the vintage people. I, I don't know about amazing. I think we're we're a group of people that care, and we we're trying, but. Just the public are so good to us. That's just amazing. Like, they're so, so good to us. Whatever we go to do, they're there behind us. And uh, we I didn't know anything about this young lady until a very short while ago. And we happened to have a meeting one night and her name came up. Mm-hmm. And uh, TG was talking about her. And then we said we'd go from there. And we're hoping, as I said, to get a, a good few pounds for her. But the lads, the lads that are uh, with, with me and are, are you with him, whichever way you want it, they're just brilliant people. Mm-hmm. They really are down to earth, honest, good, hard working people. And, like, as I said, everyone is going their own direction at the minute. We all have a job to do, and we'll get it over the line. Mm. How does people donate uh, an event like this? Well, most of them know they'll, they'll throw money into a bucket or something on the night. Uh, some people come along with uh, checks, companies uh, and things that often give us checks or ring us and say, listen, we're giving you a donation, and that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. That's the way it comes in. Like, a lot of it is word of mouth. And, uh, Look at them, they're, they're a good bunch of people out there in Clenolty and they're well known for, for helping people and uh, people just row in behind that. Mm-hmm. You know, certain cases like they row in behind that. How long are you at this business, Michael? Because it's been a long, I know you quite a long, long time through the radio and, and all the rest and uh, Michael Fahey's name comes up all the time. Um, I might have a good while. I might have a good while, would you like that? Um, I don't get tired of it. I don't get tired of it at all. It's just a, a great kick out of it. You know, it's, it's uh, you're helping somebody and, and uh, once you get that bit of money to them and you, you, you can see the relief for them that they know they can go forward and keep going a little bit of hope. And hopefully this will make for a great Christmas uh, for Alicia and her family and take off some of the pressures and the stresses given the, the way the country is at the minute and the cost of everything, like, you know. So, yeah, it's just grand to be able to do it and, and, and we, we, we really enjoy it. Michael speaking there to my old friend Eamon O'Dwyer and that's a little part of this Saturday's Down Your Way programme. Of course, that's uh, coming to you uh, live here on a Tip FM every Saturday morning at uh, about 10 o'clock. All right, 1800-938-007. Brian was on, he says, I miss some of my pets more than some relatives and uh, neighbours and work colleagues. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I understand fully where you're coming from. I mean, the grieving pro. If you're genuinely... Um, fond of a, a dog or a, maybe it works the same for cats as if I don't know but um, it, yeah it can take an awful lot of, I think the last time I cried was when when, when Jumper passed away but you're there you are um, alright we'll take a little break and we'll talk about a brand new book that I think will be of great interest to you Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie If it matters to you, 
It matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. On the shoulders of giants is a, a great new book that tells the stories of some of our greatest hurlers and footballers from what some would argue was the golden age of GAA between the 1940s and the 1970s. Now, for us here in Tipperary, that time would, of course, be synonymous with Hell's Kitchen, one of the greatest full back lines the game had ever seen, uh, Doyle, Carey and, and, and Marr, of course. Now, the author of the book is Henry Wims, uh, who joins me on the line. Now, Henry, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, how are you? I'm very well indeed. Great to talk to you t- today, Henry. Uh, your own backstory is fascinating because you were a, a senior detective with Thames Valley Police for over 30 years and then with the BBC for a further 25 well, it's funny, Anne. I've actually played your songs on BBC as well. Have yourself. you indeed? Is, is it Muriel, it Muriel is. O'Connor? It is yeah. indeed, yeah. And, and to be honest, uh, I'm patronising it a bit. Because, give me a plug. But you're a very good singer as well, by the way. Well, thank, <laughs> thank you very much indeed for that. I'll, I'll take any praise that's going, I can tell you. What inspired a man living in Oxford with that back, uh, with that, uh, back life to, to write a book about GAA, Henry? Well, I started off, actually, um, uh, I, uh, when I was uh, 19 or 20, I uh, was working as an apprentice, uh, an apprentice panel beater in Sligo. I didn't particularly like the job. I left school uh, with very few, uh, very few uh, educational qualifications. And then um, I, uh, I would like to go to the Garda, but I wasn't tall enough at the time. There were about five foot ten or something. I was about five foot nine. And my Irish was bad. So a friend of mine decided that he would... Um, the news of the world uh, was on the go at the time, and uh, it wasn't really that much thought of uh, by the church authorities because it was pictures of saucy girls and all that. So mm. He used to get it, so he had, he was cut a long story short. There was an ad there for the police in England, so I applied and I got in, and uh, I ended up as a uh, retired as a detective inspector. And just just as I was retiring, the BBC, um, where uh, uh, there was a lot of uh, local radios and, and regional radios. Uh, coming along, coming along line. And uh, they wanted the more, I don't know, the, the, the Scottish or the Irish accent rather than the posh English accent. Sure. So I was in the right, right place at the right time. So I ended up going in there as a broadcaster. So I did th- over 30 years in the police and over 25 years in the BBC. And, That's uh, fantastic, yeah. And but, you're not uh, new to writing books either. I think this is, is this your third, Henry, is it? That's my third one. I, I, I wrote a I wrote a GA book before, and then I wrote um, my own book, A Whimsical Journey, about my own life, my life story, my family life story, growing up in Sligo. Uh, and then uh, what happened with this latest one? Uh, I had been gathering a lot of uh, interviews, tapes, you know yourself, Fran, mm-hmm. of people I interviewed thirty or forty years ago, and uh, they were all people that from the certainly that played football and hurling in the 40s, 50s and 60s. And I thought, well, if I uh, if I start doing something on, on this, it, it would probably be something different than the lot of books on on modern uh, GA yes. players. So I, I got them out. I, I looked for some more. And at the end of the day, I uh, I did focus more on, on the 40s and 60s. And of course, the thing is, when I idolised uh, these players as youngsters and their childhood memories, all their anecdotes from the playing days, and and they told me about you know the stories of epic encounters between between rival counties, and 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 at the time I remember when I was about eight in 1956, I was sat on an old stone floor in Sligo, and I got some relatives listening at the moment uh, in Tipperary. I'll give them a mention, uh, and they will probably uh, realise what I'm saying. I listened to the 1956 All Ireland hurling final between. 
sorry, Tipperary weren't in that mm-hmm. one, but you're all rivals, Cork and Wexford. And then from that day onwards, uh, I, I was uh, I was hooked. And, um, you know, I, I although then I didn't particularly like Tipperary because my favourite team were Wexford. And that came about, and there's stories about the Rackers. The Rackers, Padge, yeah. yeah. Padge Kill. So I liked them. And uh, cut a long story short, I then got to like Tipperary because... The late, great Kieran Carey, and you just mentioned that Hell's Kitchen, um, he became related to me because my brother Peter uh, and all the Wims clan in Ross Gray, um, he came down in the late 60s, and um, his, uh, Kieran's son, is a son, I get this right, uh, is the partner of, of, of my niece. And um, so that was it. So I met Kieran on many, many occasions. Mm. And uh, to be honest, I met quite a few of them, Jimmy Doyle, uh, I didn't meet the Rattler Burn, although I interviewed them. What, yeah. Oh, yeah. what a character. What a character, absolutely, yeah. A f- fabulous man. And, of course, then I had all these interviews. Um, and, of course, the thing is, it was quite different then um, because, to, for me, still, the mention of these legendary names from from yesterday stirs up huge emotions. Um, and, of course, I had to look back on here Sunday afternoons. You might be a bit too young for this now, Fran. Mm. And... Um, you know, in, in spite of competing uh, with incessant crackling noise from the old wireless, my father shouting, turn it off, because they want, want to save it for the weather forecast. Yes. I think, and the players would agree with me, that he advanced our interest more into Gaelic games than, than, than anybody else. And I still, if I close my eyes, and I'm, I'm 75 now, I can still smell the freshly grown grass and hear the, 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 the spine-tingling sound of the clash of the ash. So, uh, I mean, Gaelic games uh, means everything to me, mm. and um, they're just um, they're just they're j- great games. Yeah, you describe it so so beautifully. You would go along with that notion then that that was the golden age of uh, GAA. Wh- why do you think that was? Or is it just about a romantic look back, and uh, you know, or, or is it that it's just not what it used to be? Well, I suppose in some way, uh, I'm looking back through Rose Tinted Glass, mm. but in those innocent days, and I'll be honest, before the advent of mass management, man management, player agents and blanket television coverage, um, the attention of every sports lover of Gaelic games, uh, the names, these names of these wonderful players still reverberate down generations. Yes. And when I, when I talk about uh, that temporary uh, full-back line of... Uh, John Doyle, who to me, and I did see them play, was the classiest. Nick Maher was the, the strongest, and Kieran Carey was the toughest. And then before that, you had the great uh, uh, Rattler Byrne. Mm. But I mean, Kieran Carey, uh, I mean, they're, honestly, these guys were, were um, I mean, they're, they're hurling to me, especially Kieran Carey. His brilliance was only surpassed by, by his modesty. Because he didn't want to talk about it. And that's but, interesting, and that's why I was delighted that you included him, because of the others, for example, he was the most low-key, um, even though they all were very vocal to say that he deserved to be up there with the greats. Well, so was, to be honest, so was Jimmy Doyle. Kieran, um, yeah. uh, so did the Billy Rackard as well. Yeah. Uh, but but, but Kieran Carey in particular, I met quite a lot of contemporary lads over the years. I, in this book, I've only uh, included just about uh, over 20, and they're all from different counties. I thought we'd do that, but they're also probably more footballers than, than hurlers. 
Um, but but Kieran Carey in, in particular, mm. I mean, he he related to me some wonderful stories when he marked Christy Ring, and one day in, in a game, Ring would just stare at him with his piercing, I don't know, blue or green eyes, <laughs> and then he shook his hand and he squeezed his hand so tightly <laughs> that they gelled the fingers together for minutes after. And he says he says to Kieran Carey. No, Kieran. He says that'll keep you stop for a little while. <laughs> and and, he, and Kieran Carey was a manual worker, and as yes. he said himself, uh, he was a strong boy. But he'd never seen anybody as strong as as, as Christy Ring. What was the common denominator in terms of their decision on who was the greatest of all time, or was there a common denominator among the people you would have spoken to over the years? Uh, there would be, and uh, was part of my the enjoyment. I always asked uh, who they uh, who they thought was, uh, was the, the great player. Now, I thought I've spoken to would have been players from the 40s, 50s and 60s. Mm. But, of course, the modern players didn't like like um, your, your uh, temporary players. Uh, my namesake, Henry, from, from Kilkenny, they didn't mm. come into the equation. But Christy Ring uh, tops it. Yes. Uh, by, by a mile. Does he? And then yeah. were, uh, it, it does. And then your own Jimmy Doyle. Yeah. And then the, the records of... of um, Wexford, of, yeah. Of Wexford. And then in football uh, parlance, then you had Sean Purcell of Galway, Mick O'Connell of Kerry, who was in that book as well. Mm. Um, an amazing character. We, I got uh, I got to meet him. Uh, incredibly, I did, because he very, very... He, he, would, he wouldn't really do interviews. And we spent a couple of lovely, lovely days with, with him and his late wife down at Valencia Island. And... An incredible man, an incredible man. I was but delighted to see as well that you included a gentleman who was a musical hero of mine, and that would be the the late great and uh, the wonderful uh, Mr. O'Brien himself. Oh, you mean oh God, the music, yes, and the music, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Dermot O'Brien, yeah, of Louth, well, yeah. Well, he, of course, a lot of these players actually that's mentioned in there uh, for their counties. Uh, I mean, Louth has not won an All Ireland football title since 1957. Yes. And then again, there's a story there. Uh, with um, he was a, a, a raw young youngsters playing in a, I think an All Ireland semi final before they won it against Kerry, and they stuck him in. He was a small little chap actually. Mm. He wasn't particularly big, but they stuck him in against the biggest and the strongest man in the, in the Kerry, a fellow called Jazz Murphy. And Murphy shook his hand and said, "Jesus, you poor creature. How are you?" In a strong Kerry accent. <laughs> But I'm taking a, a bit of a, a cork action there as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but I just love those stories. You must have been enchanted with those stories, though. I mean, you know. Oh well, it, it to be honest, enchanted isn't 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 the word. Yeah. I mean, I, I I just I just love. I mean, their memories. I mean, to be honest, to me, to provide a if if I'm honest, a, a historical, cultural, and a social record of mm. the times in which those players lived. Because then it's not just that there there are stories that are that are quite good, and what I reflect and I recollect on on the, the earliest memories, they stir up all sorts of emotions for me. I mean, there's sadness, there's happiness, there's death, amusement, and I suppose the whole process from looking back to me, anyways, can be a more of a, a therapeutic one. Of course, remind, yeah. reminding us of a simpler and more innocent time. When the days seem slower and our priorities younger, younger people. And where people would, would walk and cycle 50 miles to a match or more. You know, inc- incredible when we think back on that now. Well, there's uh, sadly, and this is another reason why I think, and I, I'm praising my own work a little bit, it's quite an intriguing and rare collection of interviews because the majority of them are now, are now dead. Yeah. But 
uh, the double All-Ireland winner, again, for Mayo in 1950-51, they have won an All-Ireland since. It was a GP over, uh, who I knew over here in, in England, Dr. John McAndrew, and he reminded me that in 1949, he cycled 35 miles to a club championship uh, final um, on, on, a, on a bicycle with his togs and his boots on the handlebars and then won the championship for Mayo and cycled back 35 miles again. My God. But, but there were the times just after the Second World War where travel was restricted. Uh, I mean, there was rationing of, of food, things like that. They lived in really, really hard times, to be honest, yes, as well. But they were very hard, men. I mean, I know that if you managed to get past... Hell's Kitchens uh, with 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 a score, you you wouldn't come out of it. <laughs> you wouldn't come out of it very well, I suppose. You know. Well, there's an old saying, and 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 Karen Carey disagreed a little bit with me, but he says an old saying that if you got in, uh, a player got in past Hell's Kitchen, uh, if you got past them, they certainly would get you on the way out. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> oh, I love it indeed. If people, I'm sure lots of people in Tipperary will want to get hold of this, Henry. How how can we do that? I'll just give it to you, but before that, can I say a big hello to Nancy Nancy Carey, uh, the wife of the late Karen Carey, who lives in Kennedy Park there in Ross Gray. That's my brother Peter, who um, who um, has uh, three lovely daughters uh, there in, in, in Ross Gray, and not forgetting Esther as well. And then I have a little, uh, a lovely niece as well. They've all come down to the Premier County. That's Lisa, her husband Barry, and two lovely little children called Teddy and Bonnie Kent. And they live a stone's throw from you in Clonmel, uh, 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 France. Excellent indeed. Right. And a big hello and a happy Christmas to them all indeed. Getting hold of the book, Henry? Right. Unfortunately, it's uh, they felt it was uh, it's going to be released before Christmas. They felt they couldn't get it in the shops because the bookstores had been more or less topped up. Mm. The only way you can get this book at the moment, it's, it's quite a big book. Uh, it's um, on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Then if you go to the, into the book section uh, and then type in Henry Wims, that's W-Y-M-B-S, yeah. on, on, the sh- on the shoulders of giants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that should you bring it, bring it into it. Very good. And it may be in the shops at some point or other. Well, they reckon the the publishers are are uh, is owned by Liam Liam Hayes. Again, I did never like uh, I never liked um, uh, Mead football. I got a smack in the jaw once when I was playing a county <laughs> game from a, a certain Mead player. But he wanted he was a double All Ireland winner uh, and a nice guy. Just in case he, I think actually, if I'm right, he's got a daughter who got married recently in temporary. So if she's listening. I just love the father. He's a lovely fella. <laughs> Very good indeed. I love it. Do you know, if you're ever over, we'd love to have you in studio because I'd love to talk to you about your times with uh, Thames uh, Police. Well, that must have been an incredible period of time. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great time. I mean, as I said, uh, I loved it uh, from day one. When I joined, uh, there's, there's quite a story of me getting in as well. I was only about five. They, they were about five or ten, the police in England as well. Mm. So what I, I was aware of that. So I put three pairs of socks on for Anne padded them up with some sellotape, and the fellow decided, he, the doctor that examined me, uh, decided not to take the socks off. So I was, I was, well, I was well there. <laughs> I but, love it. Uh, Henry, as a broadcaster, you know, you know the story when I say we're just about out of time. But look, really yeah. good to talk to you, and thank you so much for coming on with us today. And, and Fran, and good luck to you. And that girl, that lady, Muriel, who's on before you, I, I think she's the carrier 
I've got a sore throat now. She was on about <laughs> pet pills and all that. <laughs> we'll blame her anyway. Look after yourself. Happy Christmas to you <laughs> and yours, Henry. Thank you. Uh, and to all your listeners as well, all the best. And thank you for having me, Brian. You're, you're welcome anytime. Thanks, Henry, and bye-bye to you. Henry Wims there speaking to us about his book On the Shoulders of Giants. That's it for me. Emma produced Ali, looks after her content. Stephen is on the way. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.